we're going to make people so angry <laughs> on this episode. Well, just for the record, it is it is seven sixteen a.m. Yeah, uh, on on a holiday week, the kids are still in bed, and uh, I I insisted I'd be happy to wake up early because <laughs> this is I've, I'm very excited about this this episode. Which we've been it was funny because you know we'll get to it later, but but I was actually confused when you when you posted uh, because we'd been talking about it for so long. I thought you'd already written about it. Oh. No, we'll have to get to it then. Uh... <laughs> We have some sad news, though, to talk about first. We have two two uh, obituaries to to touch upon. Uh, the one everybody, I'm sure, has heard about is uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, Lakers superstar, which I, I, I hate to say it almost is like underselling what he meant to basketball and, and the world at large. Died, passed away with his, his 13-year-old daughter in a helicopter accident uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, just shocking. Uh, and Clayton Christensen, uh, we can talk about after Kobe, I guess, uh, lost a, he was only 67, which again, me nowhere near as young as Kobe, of course, who was 41, but still just 60, you know, that's how you know what you're getting old is when you hear somebody died at 67 and you think, ah, oh, too young. Yeah. No, I mean, it, but he died. It, he it, lost it, a battle with leukemia, uh, this week too. Yeah, I actually I, I wrote about them in conjunction because it was it was interesting because I, I had planned to sort of write about Christensen. Obviously, it's been a huge impact on Stratechery and, and and on me. And uh, didn't didn't really didn't know him, um, but uh, but still, you know, of anyone that's that's sort of been impactful on what I write about, he's certainly top of the list and a figure that's you know sort of widely known and pretty widely revered in in Silicon Valley and. What was interesting about it with, with then then sort of the Kobe news happened and you know I what, it was the age thing that was so striking to me because a lot of the f- people that have died or you know and the older we get the more the people that are like we're familiar with die and it's just kind of like something that that you have to deal with They're, they still always seem someone that I looked up to and you know like Christian to your point is sixty seven which is uh, unfortunately too young but is still you know twenty eight years older than I am and. And, and you know, and it's like, man, that that's a shame. I hope I live longer than that. Uh, you know, his, his poor family, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still like in your the way they they're like in your head is someone that's you, you look up to, right? Whereas Kobe, uh, he was the same age as me, right? I mean, he's or two years two years older, yeah. and and so yes, you look up to his sort of athletic accomplishments, and you know, obviously Kobe has is a very uh, complex character uh, that is never far from mine. I think, particularly people my age, because of you know the the very sort of the allegations against him from Colorado. That's sort of like when you grew up with him. That was you know like I remember him in high school. I remember when he came to the NBA. I remember when he won those titles with Shaq. I remember when that that trial sort of dominated you know the news. Uh, I remember when when he sort of came back to win the title again, and and it was much more of a. I'm not saying I'm Kobe's peer, but it's like it's just like my I feel like my relationship with him is so much different than my relationship with Christensen, neither of whom I yeah. knew. Right. But just because the the age was very different. And so it was way more jarring for me, like dramatically more jarring. It's like this is like my contemporary. Yeah. I'm a little bit in between. I mean, I'm forty six, so Jordan's ten years older than me and Kobe was five years younger. So I'm a little closer in age to Kobe, but he always felt, you know, and it is one thing I know. I don't want to turn this into a sports episode of the show. Um, 
But one thing about being a sports fan is you're far more than other forms of knowing famous people, like following politics closely or um, like traditional celebrity news, like like actors and actresses, is you're acutely aware of their age and your age. You know, like how old is Brad Pitt? I don't know. I have no idea. The guy doesn't seem to age. You know, Tom Cruise. I mean, Jesus Christ, the guy looks exactly the same as he did 25 years ago. Uh, you know, and, and it can keep, these guys can keep making the same sort of movies they used to make. I mean, Harrison Ford was making, was, is still making action movies. I mean, he looks his age now, but I mean, they're still going to make a new Indiana Jones movie. You know what I mean? Like athletes don't get to do their thing when they're, you know, honestly pushing 40, you know, it's a, it's, it's a wonder that there are, you know, uh, you know, quarterbacks in the NFL who are 40, 41, 42, still doing their thing. Basketball doesn't really work that way. Although somebody, I just saw somebody in the NBA is 42 and still logging minutes, but, uh, well, we have Vince Carter, that's yeah. a huge exception. And, yeah. and, and, and the, the NBA is in particular, cause it's so, I mean, the edges are so small when it right. comes to sort of athleticism, right? Like there's, there's guys that are coming in the league now and they're coming in. It's like, Oh, he's 21 years old. Like in, in that, like reduces his value as a prospect yeah. because he has like, as compared to a 19 year old, like th- that, those two years of potential development make a big difference. But the yeah. implication is to your point, yeah, you're super aware of how old everyone is because yeah. it's a critical part of sort of evaluating, you know, their, you know, their potential, you know, how much it should be paid, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yeah, and like there, like the prime of your career is like 27 to 29 Man. years old. And, and yeah. And so the guys that, guys that sort of retire, it's like, yeah, they've been on the downswing for a while. You kind of know what's coming and, and, um, you know, it's, it certainly we went through that, went through that with, with Bryant and, uh, and, and yeah, but, but it's like, but it makes it almost more tragic in a way because it's like, all right, now on one hand, it's like, okay, you know, if Kobe Bryant was put on earth to play basketball, he played basketball, played it well, accomplished all he could accomplish. And, and, and that was that on the other hand, you know, he more than, more than most athletes really seem to be leaning into sort of you know, his second act as it were. Yeah, and, totally. And, and he was so clearly, you know, for, for, you know, again, say what, say what you, you will and what needs to be said about his past. He was so clearly devoted to his family yeah. and, you know, like the whole reason he had a helicopter was because he wanted to be able to drive his kids to school in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon. And that was yeah. the only way that was viable in Los Angeles. Right. And so he, like, he's been on like thousands of helicopter rides yeah. and, and it's like, oh man, it, it, it's, it, it, it it's rough. Yeah, I saw it. There was a, it's just a heartbreaking clip. I mean, all of it's heartbreaking. It's just tragic. But, um, there was a clip of him on the Jimmy Kimmel show recently. And I guess he has, uh, or had uh, four daughters. Um, and one some, was just born. Yeah. One was just born in June. But, uh, the, you know, he has one who's older. His second daughter was 13 and she was the one who, who died with him on the helicopter crash going to a basketball game. Um, but he was talking to Jimmy Kimmel, and I, I didn't see the initial context for the interview. But it was basically that people keep coming up to him and saying, "Hey, you got all these girls, but you got to keep going. You got to have a boy, someone to carry on your legacy. You know, have a have a boy." And he was like, "Hey, I already got a kid who's going to carry on my legacy, Gigi. You know, his daughter, and that she's really good at basketball, um, and that's the one who died with him." And then I was watching; there were some clips on Twitter of her playing, and man, there was a play she made as a thirteen-year-old. It's like, oh my god. 
There was this play where she stole the ball like in a press and then like did like a spin move between two defenders and then like the nicest little easiest finger roll and it was like, oh my God, that she's got it, you know. She had it. Yeah. Um Oh, just I'm tearing up as I think about it. I mean, I'm not I'm a sports fan, certainly not a Lakers fan, but it's like when man, when somebody dies, I mean you don't have to root for the team to just uh your heart just goes out. Uh and you're a bigger basketball fan than me, but man, you just what Kobe meant to to that generation of players is just unbelievable. Oh, that's oh, that's that's something that's been super super striking to me because for you and I, it was Jordan, right? Yeah. Like Jordan yeah. was the guy, you know. Like I mean, just, just to do a rough analogy, like Jordan was like the Clay Christensen for for me, you know, like where you look up to him, like you grow up with him, like he yeah. came in the league. You know, when I was just when I was just a kid and his dominant years in the 90s, I was in high school. And, and so, you know, he was someone like he was older, like he was do- he was there present my whole life. Like even like the Bird and Johnson, you know, Magic Johnson era, like they, that's probably what they were for you is what Jordan was for me. Because yeah. like they yeah. were already there when I got there. I mostly remember them as a little kid. Well, and they I, were- I mostly remember their their, their, yeah. their sort of decline less yeah. than I remember sort of their their prime. Yeah, I I was uh, yeah. The age difference is such that the Bird Magic Doctor J era is a little bit more for me what Jordan was for you. But like Bird and Magic's rookie year was seventy nine or eighty eighty seventy nine dash eighty maybe. Like where the eighty the nineteen eighty finals was the one where Kareem had the the killer migraine headache, couldn't play, and Magic, who was the point guard, played center. Came into Philly and won a huge game as the center. Yep. <laughs> when he played, I mean, it helps when you're six nine. You know that you can just sub in for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar <laughs> in the NBA Finals as a right. point guard. One of the greatest but, players of all time. But still, it it just showed that he was there. But 1980, I was only seven years old. I don't I don't freaking remember. I can't say it. So like by the time I really understood basketball, uh, Bird and Magic and Dr. J were already the guys. You know what I mean? They were just there. They were just, they were the NBA. And Jordan was the first player at that level, like someone who's in the argument for best player of all time. And who, you know, I still would say is the best player, but somebody who was in that argument who I remember like being drafted, you know, playing. Uh, I remember Jordan playing college. I remember when Jordan was on the end, uh, the Olympic team with Bobby Knight as the coach. Um, and I remember, I remember the one, I, I mean, again, I want to talk about Kobe, but I just remember like as like a seminal moment, I remember the time this 86 season when Jordan had a knee injury and missed a ton of the regular season and played in the playoffs and lit the Celtics up for like 64 points in a playoff game. And the Celtics ended up one, but bird bird said something after the, and bird was like the most competitive rotten son of a bitch who ever played sports and he was just like uh, even though they hadn't finished the series yet he was like yeah he's the best player of all time <laughs> which is not easy for those guys to say no not easy for larry bird to yep. say uh, and, and, and well but that's the thing though is like the way we feel about jordan or, or and bird or you feel about bird and magic that's how all the players today feel about yeah, kobe yeah totally. right and so it's like when you see them so devastated yeah. and um and the, that all the guys in the nba like looked up to him yeah and like he and uh, and he was like, he was like, he's your favorite player's favorite player, basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, is the, you know, way, the way to think about it. And, uh, you can understand it's like an age thing. Like it, that, it, that makes me feel old, right? Yeah. It makes me feel old to see all these NBA players that I love to watch, but I, they're all at least like 10 years younger than me. Yeah, right. Yeah. So of course Kobe's their guy. Yeah. 
and it's not Jordan in the, in the uh, way it is for me. I, and I, like, I know all of these guys. Yeah, exactly what you said. They're all, he meant so much to all of these guys. And there's so many of them who say, yeah, that's the guy who I watch. And I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to be in the NBA. Uh, but one of the guys who stood out to me, I mean, they have so, so many comments, so many tear, tearful interviews, you know, in the last few days. But I, I, Steph Curry was talking about, I saw Steph Curry and Steph said, um, that the, the, the searing memory for him was that game where Kobe scored 80. And he was like, yeah, look, I know Will Chamberlain scored 100, you know, but I can't relate to that, you know, and that, that, that'll, you know, that might stand for the ages. Um, but you know, that was like 1961 or something like that. Like these guys saw Kobe Bryant score 80 points in a game. And that's like what Steph was saying. Like I saw it, you know, and it was like the modern game. Like I know, and I know now I'm in the league and I know what that means. You know, like I know how impossible that is to rack up 80 points in a game, you know, and it's just unbelievable. Um, the thing with the other thing, the other thing with him is, you know, I wasn't a Laker fan either. I wasn't a Kobe fan. I've been, you know, there's a, uh, you know, particularly the waiters, you know, he's notorious for, you know, he's going to get his shots up. You know, it was, it, it, yeah, you yeah. say it was the modern game. It was a modern game relative to Wilt, but modern to sort of today's more space oriented, you know, three point oriented, uh, a, a bit more, uh, you know, a, a, a different, different for sure. Yeah. But I think the thing that, um, you know, what, what, Marks the sort of, there's different levels of greatness. So there's greatness purely in a basketball sense, like Tim Duncan, Probably from a pure basketball sense, uh, a better player, more significant than Kobe. Yeah. But from a cultural sense, from the holistic nature of basketball, where it's not just about what happens on the court, but the impact on those around around you, the the entire media landscape, the sort of expansion of the NBA to China uh, is a huge part of this. Uh, Like Kobe was astronomically more important than Tim Duncan. You know, it's like, it's kind of like if you take a feeds and speeds approach to basketball, you know, to to tie it to like a a sort of tech tech idea, like, yeah, Tim Duncan has better feeds and speeds relative to Kobe, like sort of historically speaking. But if you take a holistic view of all, everything that goes into being a basketball player, everything that goes into being significant and meaningful like Kobe is just just is is so much bigger and uh and again I say that as someone that's not a Kobe fan like but it recognizes the fact that the the impact is is just uh is is just is just so huge if you could go back in time and draft either him or or Tim Duncan as the GM of a team and you and your goal is to win championships I would take Tim Duncan in a heartbeat um although maybe maybe you you kind of want to make sure you have a pop there too just well, it's interesting. It, if you're if you're a market like San Antonio, you want to take Tim Duncan right. a million times out of a million. If you're the Lakers, you want to take Kobe. Like you're, you're the Lakers. Like you're yeah. you're like the Lakers more than any franchise are absolutely about winning. Yeah. Uh, like they're the winningest franchise in history, but they're also about the show. And the, like that's yeah. what I mean. I hate to say it. I hate the Lakers. You know, particularly as a Bucks fan. You know, losing. You know, you talk about Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Like he was a Buck uh, and uh, lost into the Lakers. Because he wanted to go to the big market, the bright lights, and and honestly, Milwaukee probably wasn't the greatest place for someone like him at that time in history. Um, but you know, the the they're probably along with the Yankees, sort of like you know, at least in North American sports, the greatest franchise because they it they they do it all. They yeah. win, and they're and they're like the star, it's and they're like be a the show. talk of the town. It's got to yeah, be a show. exactly, right. exactly. Uh, yeah, and I was gonna say if you're if you're running uh, a sneaker company and you want to sign you know rookie Tim Duncan or rookie Kobe Bryant to a to a deal, you yep. want you want Kobe. <laughs> I don't even I don't even know which sneaker company Tim Duncan was. No, I don't with. know either. I don't, I really don't. 
<laughs> Whereas everybody knows Kobe was with Nike. Everyone in the NBA wears Kobe. I think I'm pretty sure it's the most popular shoe. It's something like 33% or something wear, wear Kobe's. Um, uh, which is crazy, right? For a retired player. Uh, ah, just so sad. Really sad. Uh, and then Christensen. Clayton Christensen. I I don't know what's more likely. I know that people, you know, there's a lot of people listening to the show who don't know sports. Uh, maybe it's possible that there's more people listening who do know Clayton Christensen. <laughs> you know, Christensen no, this is a, a very unique audience. <laughs> uh, but he's best known for his, I, I would say, I mean, for his theory of disruption, which I should let you summarize. Because <laughs> I know well, you... Well, basically... <laughs> Well, it, it, uh, uh, so the, the theory in general is that, you know, if, if the established uh, sort of companies in a the market, they succeed by listening to their customers. And and at some point, though, they sort of like they, they deliver a product that is good enough for, for most customers. And so they're in the pursuit of growth, they sort of follow and listen to their most valuable customers and most demanding customers. And the products they build become more and more powerful, more and more feature-filled, uh, and more and more expensive. And what happens is a technological change enables some new entrant to sort of serve the same market. But they, the, the new entrant like serves people that, uh, that, that don't need the big product, that have sort of different needs, and they can't afford the big product. And it's worse. It's a worse product. And this worse product comes in, and it, and it sort of builds up a base, and it starts to improve. And because it's a worse product, it improves much more rapidly than sort of the existing product. And, start, and it's lower price because, it's, because of technology. And it sort of pulls in and starts to capture, slowly go up market, pulling in more and more people until the incumbent is left with nothing but the highest-end customers and the super complicated, super expensive product – and this low end product sort of takes the entire market from underneath them, and and so you can sort of see the the allure here to technology because the a technological change is critical to 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 disruption. If you're just a cheap product, it's not a disruptive product because by the time you become as full featured as the existing product, you're gonna be the same price, right? If you're the analogy, I think is commonly used is if you're Motel Six. You're not disruptive to, you know, sort of the Ritz Carlton. If you wanted to actually provide the same level of service and product that the Ritz Carlton did, you have to charge as much as Ritz Carlton does. You're cheap because you deliver a cheap product. Uh, whereas Airbnb is disruptive to right. Ritz Carlton because a technological change, which is sort of a, a platform that, that commoditizes trust where you don't need sort of the brand name, you can start delivering on different vectors, be having a kitchen, having a yard, having a different location, all these sorts of things that actually make it competitive in a way that's impossible for sort of a Ritz Carlton to respond uh, in, in a sort of one-to-one fashion. So uh, to articulate this, you know, this, this is something, uh, you know, and I, I, I certainly feel this too. Uh, there's a big aspect of writing about these sorts of things where it's something that people sort of knew and it had an intuitive grasp on. And what's powerful is that someone sort of write it down and put it in writing. This is, this is actually, there's a systematic way that this works again and again. And I think that's what Christian did, particularly for, you know, the first wave of technology. Like the, he, he wrote that in 1997, which is sort of the, the end of the IT era, the, the sort of beginning of the internet era. And it was a, a, a sort of, I think, a catalyzing moment for a lot of executives and venture capitalists. That's like, oh, that's that that makes sense. We I've seen this before. This is what keeps this, this is again. what keeps happening over and over again. And that's this, right. This is the pattern I should look out for. 
That's right. That's right. right. And, and what's interesting is Christensen wrote it mostly for sort of existing, you know, he worked at Harvard Business School. So he writes it for existing managers of existing companies, but uh, VCs and, and exe- tech executives took it as like marching orders, right? Because they, they didn't want to look at being the incumbent company. They're like, oh, we, we're trying to build the new entries, the new entrants to these industries, you know, leveraging technology to have a, a sort of fundamental cost advantage going forward where we can deliver a crappier product that attracts users, but over time becomes something that's very, you know, co- competitive with them and, and beats them. Yeah, and I think that he helped systemize in a very um, cogent way. Like, there's a lot of people in that racket, uh, whatever you would call what he did, whose writing I find impenetrable. Um, whereas I always found the stuff I read of his uh, very cogent. Very clear. And I think what he helped systemize was this idea that what heretofore a lot of people had chalked up to a bunch of unrelated flukes, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, the uh, Japanese import cars coming in and taking over the, uh, the, well, maybe not taking over is the wrong word, but certainly completely disrupting the U.S. automobile market. Uh, I, I think is a prime example. I know one of his biggest case studies was like the steel industry and the way that, um, you know, lower mini, cost mini mills, yeah. yeah, mini mills, uh, you know, took the market out from under us steel. And I think a lot of people looked at all these things as a series of flukes, you know, in the computer industry, um, you know, mainframes went to microcomputers and microcomputers were like terribly misnamed because <laughs> they were huge. <laughs> I know. What's funny is it was a terrible, it was a terrible naming in general because the personal computer was terribly named as well. Yeah, right. The, the phone's the personal computer. Yeah, right? totally. looking back, it's like yeah. this desktop big thing on your thing. Oh, it's the personal. I think computer. I wrote that at one time, and if I didn't, do I? I sure wish I did. That I think I did. I think there was a daring fireball piece one time where I was like one of my reviews of the iPhone, where I was like, we blew it. We wasted the name personal computer because this is the personal computer. Yeah. Um, but microcomputers were only micro com- compared to mic mainframes but you know and, and again over and over again this is a toy these aren't serious and then all of a sudden they put the other thing out of business and then the personal computer came in and they were toys and they're not useful for anything real and they're for hobbyists and people with uh, unkempt beards and then next thing you know nobody knows what a microcomputer is um and it happens over and over again and it, they weren't flukes that this is a pattern Yep, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, the the and it's 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 super interesting because uh, you know it means a lot to me personally, in part because a, a big well, there's two parts with Christensen. I, I wrote about this a little bit in a Daily Update this week. Like the first one was I went to business school not because I really wanted to go to business school, but because I was like an English teacher in Taiwan, and it was the shortest, fastest route to legitimacy in the U.S. job market. And I'm like, you know, like I just wanted a way in to sort of U.S. tech companies. And I thought, you know, I, I had been grown up on sort of tech culture online where the MBA is, is worthless, et cetera, et cetera. So I was very sort of cynical and skeptical going in. And w- one thing was just one, like being exposed to Christensen there, it was like, whoa, this is amazing, right? Like I didn't even realize, you know, how influential he was in tech. I, didn't, I hadn't read him until I got to business school. It's like, and it was so, to your point, it was so intuitive. And, it, and what's so fascinating about his insight is, so many, so many sort of strategic evaluations and like you look at companies and why they do what they do, 
distilled to, wow, they're dumb. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, actually, no, these companies are filled with very smart people. And what was, what was so interesting about the disruption as a whole, and I think is one of my biggest meta takeaways from it, is the implication of it is managers can fail by doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Like their, their, their mistake, quote unquote, is serving their customers well. And it's like, well, that that's what's so um, it's so elegant about the theory. It's not saying that they're doing things wrong. It's that by doing things right, they're putting themselves in an uncompetitive position if some sort of paradigm change comes along. And you, and you see this again and again in technology where companies are dominant in one area and, and they're like, why do startups succeed in displacing them? Well, because something fundamental in the core model shifts that the startup, by virtue of being a startup, can adapt themselves to and take advantage of in a way that an existing company with tons of people and tons of resources can't. And and and, and I think almost the, the meta point where it's like a cultural point and a, and a cost structure point where you get locked into a way of doing business and are unable to respond, it's what enables startups to succeed against super, you know, like startups don't just beat struggling companies. They beat successful companies. Why does that happen? And so it's like that, that matter point I think is, is interesting as well. Um, but so that like was, you know, I first wrote about Christensen in business school saying, why has Apple not been disrupted? And, you know, that was trying to sort of like put them together, like the, the things that about disruption and, and, and Apple successes seem to go counter to that. But by the time I started Chatechery, which is a, a couple of years later, I, I actually thought that because Christensen was very critical of the iPhone, mm. iPhone sort of, uh, I was going to um, get to this. Yeah. The, it's possibilities, right? Um, right. Like he thought Nokia was going to go back as a sustained technology, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's wrong. And actually, I actually wrote an article called uh, Why Clay Christensen is Wrong, right. which was probably pretty combative, combative in retrospect. But this was me, like, you know, a, a fresh blogger out of business school wanting to make a name for himself. Um, and and so I was probably a little more aggressive in my titling then than I would be now. Uh, but But it was, you know, it's like, I mean, it's like Kobe, you know, Kobe in, he wants to play Michael Jordan, he wants to beat him, right? It's like like me wanting to take that on was because he was such an intellectual hero for me that, like, the greatest honor I could do was, like, I'm going to take you on. Like, I'm going to say why this is wrong. And, you know, probably a bit audacious and brash in retrospect, but it was a a testament to how much I looked up to him and his work that I would even think to write a piece called that. Yeah, basically, uh, and I think he came around on this too, and I think in a very interesting way, and it just shows how intellectually, um, uh, his intellectual approach was the right way, which was that he's, you know, to me, it's a huge thing. Are you willing to admit a mistake? It's one of the biggest things in the world. And to me, it's, I mean, we could do a whole show about how the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket because nobody's willing to reconsider their views on anything. Um, but like I've always said, the only way to be right all the time is to more or less to try to be right all the time, be smart enough to be right most of the time, but be humble enough to recognize when you're wrong and then correct it. And if you can do that, then you can come really close to being right all the time. But you've got to have that. That last part is important because you're going to be wrong sometimes. You know, I am. I'd no doubt about it. Um, but I thought his, his analysis of the iPhone was interesting, was that – and and. If you, know, you might have been wrong, even if Apple had made the iPod phone that we had, a lot of us had been expecting. But basically, he thought, you know, this is expensive. 
This is coming in at the high end. Yes, it's, you know, just, you know, it's certainly innovative and it's ahead of the pack, but that the pack is going to catch up and then everybody's just going to buy the mass market stuff. And more, more or less that the thing that happened to the Mac with the Windows PCs would happen again. Um, I don't think that's an unfair summary. And I think even he acknowledged later on that his mistake was that the iPhone wasn't disruptive to the cell phone industry. It was disruptive to the PC industry. And there, the iPhone wasn't a heavy-handed, expensive, over-the-top thing. It was pure disruptive theory. It was lower-end. It was underpowered. It was smaller. It had this tiny little three-and-a-half-inch screen. It ran a cut-down version of a PC operating system. It only ran one app on, it still only runs one app on screen at a time uh, and totally replaced so many hours of so many people's days that they used to spend on PCs. That's right. No, it, it, that's exact, it, it's a perfect example of disruption. That's what's so it, ironic about it. And you're right. And to his credit, he, he admitted this later. He, like the, 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 he was thinking about the iPhone as being a phone, which right. is understandable because yep. the name is iPhone. Yep. And the whole point is that it wasn't a phone. It was a computer that happened to make phone calls. And, and once you realized it was a computer, it was, it's the epitome of, dis, of disruption. And again, because the other thing too is the way th- people use the f- iPhone at the beginning was not to replace their computers. It started out by doing other stuff, yeah. right? And yeah. what's the point? These products start uh, serving needs that are not met by sort of the incumbent. That, that, and, and then they add on, they get better, and then they start to take away from the incumbent. And you end up with exactly what disruption theory sort of predicts where, yes, at the very highest end, you still have PCs. There's things you can still only do on a PC. And PCs actually over time have, have gotten, you know, more expensive, particularly, the you know, be, because the only ones using them are the most demanding users. And the entire bottom and middle and <laughs> part of the market has just been completely taken over by, by the phone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just in terms of mind share, in terms of what, what device do people upgrade more frequently? Uh, I mean, people would just hold on to their PC now until it freaking breaks, you know, whereas people, I'm not saying, you know, I, and famously, I, I know that year after year, it's, I, I repeat myself all the time that normal people don't upgrade their phones every year or even two years. They, they, you know, they spend, they, they consider them very expensive purchases. They put them in tank like cases to protect them because they're so expensive and they do use them for multiple years, but they look forward to getting a new phone. Right. It's a fun, this is a fun thing when you decide, Hey, I'm going to get a new iPhone 11 and wow, look at this. I get, you know, have this amazing new camera and I can do all this stuff. Uh, it's the screen's bigger. It's so much brighter and they're happy. Whereas people, you know, look forward to getting a PC the way they look forward to like getting a new microwave. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's exactly right. Oh, yep. what a pain in the ass. I got to like take this thing out of my cabinet and uh, I got to figure out if it's going to fit. And, uh, man, and now it's the buttons I don't really like, you know. Got to try out 15 new mouses if you're yeah. uh, John Syracuse. Yeah, exactly. It's just a chore for most people, whereas the phone is something fun. And um, yeah, anyway, I just thought that was really insightful that he just totally, he t- completely recognized his mistake. And it wasn't like to fit it. It wasn't like, oh, now I figured out a way to make it fit my famous theory. It was that he figured out, you know, it, it, he's correct. It totally disrupted the PC, you know. Which sort of will tie into something we want to talk about later with the iPad, which also, you know, is 
closely related to the iPhone and definitely uh, disruptive to the PC industry. Um, or is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, let me take a break here. Next after this. <laughs> <laughs> and thank our first sponsor, our good friends at Linode. I want to say Linode because that's what it looks like, but it's Linode because they run Linux. Uh, Linode is the, in my opinion, best hosting service for getting your own server online. It is where I host Daring Fireball now. I could not be happier. I love it. It is so fast. Oh, everything is so much faster at Daring Fireball. It's since I've moved a couple months ago. Oh, it just makes me smile every day. Uh, I still haven't gotten used to how much faster some of the things are. Um, they've got the pricing support and scale. You need to take your next project to the next level. They, level. they have 11 data centers worldwide including their newest in Sydney, Australia. They've got one in Mumbai, India now. Uh, they've got one in Canada. And sometimes it's not just about like how close you are for latency and things like that. Sometimes for legal compliance, you need servers in the country where you are. They've got them all over the world now. And they all deliver the performance you expect at the price that you probably don't because it's so low. You can get started today with a $20 credit just for listeners of the show. I'll tell you the code when I'm done talking about them. But you can get $20 credit and you get access to native SSD storage. Everything is SSD. That, to me, is the biggest reason why Daring Fireball runs so much slower than it did before. Uh, just unbelievable how much rebuilding stuff through my CMS is so much faster now. They have a 40 gigabyte, gigabit network, industry-leading processors, and their revamped cloud manager, which is built on open source. It is a single-page app. It is terrific at cloud.linode.com. You get root access to your server you get an API. They have a Python command line interface if you're a developer and you want to hook up to it. And they have a plan. They call it the Nanode plan. Nano because it's small. The smallest plan starts as low as five bucks. Five bucks a month. But it is a really good plan. It is really good. And an awful lot of very serious websites with a lot of traffic could get by just fine with it. And with that $20 discount I told you about, that's like four months free. Actually, no like about it. It is four months free. Uh, really, it's just a great service. Here's the code, promo code, TALKSHOW2020. TALKSHOW, that's the show, 2020, that's the year. Use that when you create a new Linode account. You get $20 credit towards your next project. And one last thing, Linode is hiring. If you're a system administrator or any sort of nerd who might want to work for a company like Linode, which is a great company. They have their headquarters right here in Philadelphia, in fact, but you could probably work anywhere for them. Go to linode.com slash careers to find out more. So go to linode.com slash the talk show. The URL is linode.com slash the talk show. But the promo code to save 20 bucks is talk show 2020. I believe you wanted to say that uh, during Fireball runs faster now, uh, not oh. slower. Oh, is that what I said? Slower? Well, <laughs> I usually, I usually, uh, I, I have to catch, mute. I was going to jump on and catch you. That'll catch people's ears. No, it runs faster. <laughs> so much faster. It's ridiculous. Uh all right, what else do we have on the agenda now that we're done with the obituary parts? Uh, I just wanted to toss this out there as a little bit of follow-up. Uh, Glenn Fleischman and I, I think, talked about the Astros cheating scandal last week. Uh, there's a new website I'm going to put in the show notes, signstealingscandal.com. This guy is an obsessive. He's a Houston Astros fan, and I give him credit. He's an Astros fan, and he is so upset that his beloved team stooped to such a lowly and dastardly level as to set up a, a cheating scandal. He logged <laughs> 8,200 pitches of from 
TV telecasts that are available online from the Astros 2017 series and created a website with all sorts of data about which batters were getting these trash can signals. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, and it- and it's something that I think is not clear to to maybe non baseball fans. There was a it, it is super interesting. I retweeted this last night, but uh, apparently Randy Johnson was tipping his pitches uh, throughout his career, huh. and he never knew until uh, Eduardo Perez told him at the at his Hall of Fame induction, <laughs> and uh, and and people were like, oh, what a cheater! Blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, that's not cheating, right? right. Like right. you picking up this like. This the a guy being on second and looking in on the catcher or a batter observing a pitcher super closely and figuring out what they're pitching. Yeah. That's smart baseball, right? Yep. That's yep. that's like and the difference with the Astros is using cameras and like phones and elect in the the Boston Red Sox previously yep. using like Apple Watches. Yeah, it's using electronic means to do it. That's, that is the problem. After like, specifically after the commissioner of baseball sent a very curt letter to every team in the league reemphasizing that league policy is that when it comes to signs dealing electronic devices of any kind are completely verboten over the line you know and they don't get into like the what you can pick up with your own eyes and maybe hand signals or whatever else you're doing without using electronics the league just sort of they don't there's no rules about it it's just sort of a gray zone they didn't acknowledge it but it's not a gray zone it's black no it's totally okay like well they don't mention it though but they don't but the commissioner doesn't say that it's okay Right. right. The commissioner doesn't say it's okay to steal signs with your eyes. It's just understood that it is because how else, you know, what else? It, it almost couldn't ban it. But they sent a letter. After this, all, all this stuff happened after the league reemphasized what had already been on the books. But just to make clear that electronics of any kind, wired, wireless, anything that's electronic, and everybody knows what's electronic and what's not, uh, right. is banned. And so, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't see that about Randy Johnson. Yeah, I'll, pa- it, I'll pass it to you. But yeah, it's, it's actually it, it's funny. You, the reason I found it is because another former major leaguer retweeted it, said, "Oh, it to- it's totally true. It's the only way I could square up, square up against him." And <laughs> what's amazing is, like, this, that's the sort of thing where it's probably fairly widely known. Like, if, if yeah. it, like everyone's so helpless against Randy Johnson that you're that any tip you can get is going to help, and he was still completely dominant. And which is which is uh, goes to show what a dominant pitcher he was if he was actually tipping his pitches and was still striking guys out like crazy. Sure, you're <laughs> Randy, for those of you who don't know, Randy Johnson was 6 foot 10. He was an enormously tall. He would have been tall as a basketball player. Uh and and uh, in addition and he threw like sidearm, so it, yeah, it, or like and, or a three-quarter arm. And was one of those tall lanky fellows who you often do see in basketball. Like there's the famous um Leonardo da Vinci uh picture of like the human uh typical per uh, scale of a human being. And it's just, I, I don't know. I just assume everybody knows this, but it's an interesting fact that most people have an arm span. In other words, you put your arms out side to side from fingertip to fingertip is usually almost exactly as tall as you are. You know, and Leonardo drew this in a, a circle, you know, put a circle around a, a figure of a man with his arms straight out. But sometimes there's a lot of basketball players who have an arm span that's even longer than they are tall, even though they are tall. And, you know, it's a tremendous advantage in basketball to have a very long arm span. Randy Johnson was one of those types. So in addition to being six foot ten, 
which is really tall and therefore makes the ball come out at an angle you're not used to. And the fact that he threw sidearm, which is weird and made the ball <laughs> seem like it was coming out of the side of the mound. His arms were so long that it was any, you know, would take a long stride towards the plate that it was almost like he threw harder than most pitches pitchers, but because he was so long and his arms were so long, it was like, it was like he got to start four feet closer to you. <laughs> yep. And it was coming in from the side. If you're yeah. a left-handed pitcher in particular, it's like coming from behind your head. You've probably seen um, it because it, 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 it was back in the era before interleague play. So the national league players didn't really get to see American league players much. And Randy Johnson was an American league pitcher, but uh, John Crook, Philly's Philadelphia Phillies first baseman in the all-star game <laughs> against, do you ever see that at bat? Yep. You know, absolutely. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> He's like, he's like, nope, <laughs> in the All-Star game. And he just yep. was like, nope. I'll have to put a clip of it in the show notes because it, it really shows you how, how crazy scary he was as a pitcher. No, you, just, you just think about it. You're in there. It's already sort of like terrifying that these guys coming in, you know, 100 miles per hour because he would, he would throw 100. And it's literally coming from be, like behind your head <laughs> and like cutting across <laughs> you. Uh, John Crook looked like it would look like if I was up there batting against any major league pitcher, I would just be terrified, leaning back, yep. diving out of the, diving backwards out of the box. <laughs> um. Anyway, I got to put a link into the show notes about this website where this guy obsessively documented eighty two hundred pitches pitches over the season. I just I I I'm always fascinated by anybody who's obsessive about anything, but. This in particular, and and again, extra points for him being an Astros fan. Uh, what else did I want to talk about on follow up? I guess I don't have a lot more to say. Glenn and I last week really went deep on the whole iPhone iCloud encryption thing, so I don't have a lot to follow up on that. I guess the one point I want to make, and I sort of kind of need to write about it just to clarify, is, and I think that this is a little bit Apple's fault too is tossing around the word encryption and what's encrypted and what's not. Because it's at this point, it isn't useful to clarifying what the point is of this whole thing with iCloud. Because everything is encrypted in transit. Everything you do with iCloud, from whatever your device is, whether it's an iPhone, iPad, Mac, in between your device and the iCloud servers that Apple runs, in, on the network, everything is encrypted. Everything you do. Um, on disk, on the iCloud servers, everything is encrypted in some way, except for email. And email is an exception because that's just the way IMAP email works. And I had a link to a Jeff Duncan article from years ago explaining why. And it's complicated, but it, it more or less, it, long story short, is because email was invented you know, in the very, you know, in the prehistoric days of the internet when everything was, nothing was encrypted and everything was stored, plain text files on disk. And email's like the one aspect of that prehistoric internet that's still with us and will probably always be with us. And it's just the nature of it that that's how email works. It doesn't, it can't be encrypted. So if you ever, if you are going to commit crimes, don't coordinate. Don't email about them. Don't email about them. Because even if you do the thing, and I don't want to go on a side note about it, you, and I don't want to get emails, people telling me about like PGP, where what you can do is email someone where the text of the email is encrypted. Um, 
Because even then, even if you use something like PGP to encrypt the text of your email, the headers, the header files of the email can't be encrypted. There's no way to encrypt the whole thing. And so like, okay, the contents of an email can be encrypted, but it's a huge pain in the ass. Almost nobody does it. Um, email isn't really meant to be used that way. And they, anybody who subpoenas your email or has access to it can see all the headers anyway, and they can see that you were emailing Les Parnas or whoever. <laughs> Whoever it was you were emailing, so don't 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 use email for crime, um, or anything you don't really anything you really feel like needs to be secret. But anyway, what I, the point I want to make is Apple encrypts. So email aside, for good reason, everything that Apple stores on disk in iCloud is quote unquote encrypted. The issue is not what's encrypted and what's not. The issue is who can decrypt what's there, and. There's two types. There's the types of stuff that they store that only you, the user, can decrypt using your device keys and your personal password. Uh, And then there's the stuff that both you can decrypt, of course, and the stuff that Apple has its own key for and can decrypt. And iCloud backups are in that latter category where Apple has a key to them and the good part of it is if you or more likely probably if you listen to the show, probably not you, but someone you know forgets their iCloud password and their they leave their iPhone in a cab or it gets run over by a car or something and gets destroyed. Now their iPhone is destroyed and they go to buy a new iPhone and the only backup they have is their iCloud backup and they don't know their iCloud password. Um what happens? Well, you can go to the Apple store and, and I actually don't know exactly what a couple people ask me, like what, what do they do to confirm that you're you like, so that Joe random thief can't go into an Apple store and say, Hey, I'm John Gruber. I, I need to uh, get my iCloud back up. I, I don't know what they do. You know, I guess they, hopefully they ask for ID and I'm actually not sure. I wish I did know exactly what they did to verify, but anyway, you can, if you somehow convince them you are who you are, they can decrypt your iCloud backup and then restore it to a new iPhone and you don't lose anything. The downside of that is that, you know, law enforcement around the world can issue a subpoena. Uh, well, I say downside. Downside from a privacy perspective, upside in some way, you know, which is why it's a debate for solving crimes. If you actually are a criminal, you know, they can subpoena Apple and Apple can provide them with the contents of your um, decrypted iCloud backup. So that's the whole issue. Who can decrypt it? Just you or you and Apple. Yeah, that's right. And a few, I think that that's a, that was a a good articulation of, of the issue. And I'm glad you, you pointed out at the end, like there are (laughs) like, there is good news that Apple can do that. Right. Right. And like, and there is, um, uh, this is something I thought a lot, a, a lot in the context of Facebook. Like Facebook's talking about encrypting like Messenger and 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 by default and their stuff like that. And you know, there's a uh, um, you know, th- there's questions about like uh, child sexual abuse material online. And one thing that comes up is that there's way more instance of it in Messenger than there is in WhatsApp. And the question is, is that because people are more evil and nefarious on Messenger than they are on WhatsApp? Or is it because WhatsApp is already end-to-end encrypted, which means no one actually knows what's going through right. WhatsApp, whereas Messenger is not? And 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 again, like 
to your point, I, I think particularly in our corner, our corner of the internet, where more people know who Clay Christensen is than who Kobe Bryant is, uh, there's a tendency to, uh, I think, over-index on one side as opposed to the other and, and say that, oh, obviously it should be this way. When, like, there's real questions here. And again, that doesn't mean your, your position is wrong, but I think it, those of us that, you know, I, I would say I'm, I'm a little more towards the middle, but I absolutely believe in strong encryption. I believe there should be no backdoors, et cetera, et cetera. I think by at least acknowledging and appreciating those that come at it from a different perspective, you can make a stronger right. argument for that position. And so right. I think that that's an important thing to call out. Yeah, you have well, to acknowledge I, anybody who's who's a good actor and and has both is being honest and is knowledgeable about the entire situation has to acknowledge either way, no matter whether you're on the side of we really did, you know, Apple should maintain these keys and provide them to law enforcement when subpoenaed for good reason. Or if you're on the side that Apple should switch iCloud backups to be truly end to end encrypted, where only the user has the key to do it. You have to at least acknowledge either way that there are significant trade-offs. You have to. If you don't, you're you're either being dishonest or you're 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 ignorant. Right. And you're not going to win the argument, right? Like right. I, I think I actually think the most compelling argument, and I made this a few years ago with the uh, San Bernardino, you know, case uh, for winning this argument with sort of the U.S. government is. You know, the U.S. government itself has an interest in encryption being strong and easy to use for normal people because the U.S. government has more secrets and more value than than sort of anyone. You know, if you think about it from an sort of industrial perspective, right? Like the the most valuable IP and a lot of the most in the strongest military in the world is the United States. It follows that the United States has more of an interest in strong encryption than basically anyone else. And, 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 and because keys do get out, keys escape. Like we, there's, there's evidence of this again and again and again. A back door is, uh, is available to both the good guys and the bad guys. And it's usually found by the bad guys first. And the, and so the, uh, to, there's a very sort of utilitarian argument to be made in favor of encryption. That's not just a, you know, uh, you know, privacy good, you know, government bad sort of approach. And I think actually would, would get the industry further. Uh, as far as you know, politically speaking, then a sort of pure, sort of like you know, privacy principle based approach um, from from a winning hearts and minds sort of perspective. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think Glenn and I made this super clear. The other thing I think is worth making super clear is from an Apple perspective, two other things: iMessage in particular, and then your your keychain. And the keychain, your keychain, if you use the iCloud keychain syncing, syncs completely outside of the iCloud backup system and is done in a way where only your keys can decrypt it and Apple doesn't have it. So um, if the FBI went to Apple and had a subpoena for everything they have about you, one thing they wouldn't get is your I, your, your keychain. They would not get all they wouldn't get any of your keychain iMessage is in a weird nether zone where iMessage from the get-go, it has it was and I, I heard this way back when it was new, like you know, when Jobs announced it famously and said, We're gonna no, I guess it was FaceTime he said he was gonna open source, not not iMessage. But uh within like a year or two of when iMessage was introduced, I, I was talking to someone at Apple who said, you know, that they they had a very simple idea. It would be like SMS except you know, some kind of cross between SMS and then like AOL Instant Messenger. Remember that? 
Uh, I do. And Apple had, you know, an AIM client. They had uh, iChat, which, you know, and supported other protocols other than AIM, too. Um, it would be a replacement for SMS and instant messaging, and it would use your phone number and your Apple ID and or, I guess I should say, your Apple ID as a unique you know, identifier for you. Uh, the fact that it uses your phone number would allow it to seamlessly replace SMS for iPhone to iPhone communication because it would default like, whereas like if you and I had been SMSing together from your iPhone to my iPhone and then we upgraded to the version of iOS that first had iMessage, our communication would just go right to iMessage and we'd get blue bubbles instead of green ones and we'd continue without knowing other than the fact that our bubble color had changed but we would no longer be limited by the technical limits of SMS and perhaps the cost limits because back then, they, they, which sounds ridiculous, some people were still paying like 10 cents an SMS uh, or had like a 500 SMS a month limit or something like that. And then the other thing, the in, whole, well, just the what other, is it? oh, sorry. The, the one other thing in that initial brief on what should it be was it should be encrypted in such a way that Apple cannot ever see the contents of anybody's iMessages. And then, you know, it was like, here, that's that's what they told the engineering team. They said, here, go build it. But right from the get-go, before, when it was just an idea on a whiteboard, one of the things right up there with let's replace SMS for iPhone-to-iPhone communication was let's design this in such a way that we cannot technically ever see the contents of anybody's iMessage. And and I think the, the, the follow-up to your point, though, if you... And now they did like iMessage in the cloud and all that sort of thing or, or whatever. Like that, it still maintained that approach right. where it's fully encrypted. But if you have iCloud backups turned on. Right. Uh, this is this is the problem. If, you can access the backups. Right. iCloud in the cloud is every bit as secure. Or iMessage, iMessage in the cloud. In the cloud. iMessage in the cloud. It remains only decryptable using the, the your device keys. The... The asterisk is that your um, your iMessage key is stored in your iCloud backup, so your backup contains it. Uh, in theory, Apple could change iMessage to work like Keychain, and even with even if they keep the iCloud backups encrypted in a way where Apple has the key. They could, and I believe should, change iMessage so that the key isn't in your iCloud backup. And the downside to that would be if you're one of these users. And apparently, I heard from a bunch of people, like people who work as geniuses in the stores, and people who's you know had friends and family who've encountered it. It truly is a common problem on a daily basis. Somebody said, it, like a listener of the podcast said that they were just in getting one of their. Uh, Apple products serviced and while they were waiting for the genius to go in the back and run the diagnostics, three different people came and their genius problem was that they couldn't access their iCloud backup. He said he couldn't believe it because it was, you know, he's reading during fireball and listening to my podcast and other podcasts and it's a hot topic. And literally while he was at the, the genius counter, three people came up and needed access to their iCloud backups and they didn't know their password. Um, Definitely a common problem. The downside would be those people wouldn't be able to access their archive of iMessages. 
you know, you'd, right. you, you would, you'd have to start over. Which, which, which seems a reasonable thing to, to give up. As, yeah. As it were. Yeah. And I think most people sort of see their iMessages as sort of transient. Um, so I kind of feel like that's, that's sort of a, hopefully a, regardless of what Apple plans to do with the iCloud backups and who has the, the keys, I really think they should move iMessage to that because I think it's a good idea for privacy. And I also think it would meet people's expectations for privacy with iMessage in the cloud. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the reasons that uh, that law enforcement still wants more access from Apple is actually not necessarily iMessages, because to your point, they can often be gotten to through iCloud backups, but other encrypted programs like WhatsApp or or Signal or things along those lines, where they want to turn on the phone because they do need actually that yeah. sort of access. Like what WhatsApp is more secure than iMessage for this reason because uh, you, you like it, it only goes via your device, right? And you yeah. notice this no, if but you want to use WhatsApp on your uh, on your computer, you, it has to go through your, through your device. Yeah, but I it does. It has to go through your device, so like your desktop thing is like sort of just a proxy to your phone. But your your iPhone backup still contains whatever I, I the don't WhatsApp know. backups. That's yeah, right. the no, WhatsApp backups. Does. And and right, right. <laughs> I have to say I enjoy it. You know that's how they got Paul Manafort. That's right. That's Paul right. Man, no, Paul Manafort was committing crimes on his phone and thought he was being smart using WhatsApp because it's end to end encrypted. But they got him because they. <laughs> they got his iCloud back up, and <laughs> then I, I laugh because I really don't like the guy. And I'm, you know, well, it, it, it's, it's, it's. I think it's really interesting, though, from a, from a sort of a, a balance perspective, because you know the. Uh, what's the one thing in like, like you could use you, your right to draw that distinction. So if you want to use, you use like signal or something, right. If yeah. you want to be true, you know, if you want to, to not have those issues. And so you have a choice as a user to figure out what's the right software to use that is truly encrypted. Right. But what's the one thing you really can't control? You, you can't control like the, the, the hardware itself. Like the, is the hardware down to its very root? Is it, is it secure? And so I actually, I think there's an argument to be made that Apple is actually in a very reasonable position where the one part of the entire sort of, uh, system that users can't control is the hardware itself and is the hardware itself secure or not? They can make choices about what cloud services they use, what, what messaging services they use. And so you can structure a truly secure messaging environment on your phone if you make all the right, right. choices, but also because Apple made the phone truly secure. Right. And, and so I, I think there's actually an argument to me that Apple is actually exactly where they should be right now, where it is possible to be truly secure, but Apple is not necessarily going to do all the work for you. And, and, and I, you know, there's some, you know, that's probably why, you know, why WhatsApp, it's, you know, is slightly less secure than Signal 2. It's not because Facebook wants to use the, the information to snoop on you or for ads. No, they're like that. That's not, it's not actually wouldn't be useful anyway. And Facebook yeah. can't, can't see the stuff, but they also sort of can be responsible corporate citizens, as it were, uh, in a way that, you know, is not necessarily a burden, nor should it be for uh, Signal, right? Signal is, um, and I think it's a reasonable compromise because 
the bad guys are going to figure it out. Uh, the sort of dumb bad guys that sort of do crimes like <laughs> Paul Manafort are not necessarily going to figure it out. Then they 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 can get caught. But also the people that truly need a secure environment that that can fall that can figure out you know can understand this sort of stuff. They can be truly secure as well, right? Yeah. And so I, I think whatever your position on Apple and the iCloud backup point or Facebook and WhatsApp and those sorts of things, the fact of the matter is there's only one piece in here that users can't make a choice about, and that is the phone. And that is the part where Apple has, you know, done, you know, huge efforts to make it truly secure. And so while we're, we can go back and forth in this middle area, I think Apple deserves acknowledgement for taking care of the one part that I as a user cannot take care of. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I, I think it's uh, uh, so the the way that you can, if you're really concerned about it, whether it's because you're committing crimes or really if and this this second part is much more reasonable. If it just is your the nature of your personality that you are not comfortable with Apple having a key to your backed up data, totally reasonable. I know, I just know. I know the people who listen to the show, and I know the sort of people who read Daring Fireball, there's a lot of you out there, totally reasonable position. And if you want your iOS life to be completely under your control, you should stop using iCloud backup. And if you do want to back up your device, which you probably do, you can still back up to your Mac or PC um, through iTunes or now in Mac OS 10.5, you do it through the Finder, but it's the same. You look at it, it's the same interface you used to see in, in iTunes. And make sure you put a password on your backup, um, which... And then and, and then you can sync that backup via Backblaze or whatever right, other service you right. want to use so you can right. have sort of cloud backups. Right. And, and you know what? I think that's totally reasonable. Right. Like like the... the or you know, Dropbox, We're, we're arguing... Right. Right, right, we're arguing about default, right? Because even if Dropbox is a subpoena, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an encrypted file that right. that you need the password to, right. to to get into. Right, and I think like we're arguing about defaults here, right? The the right. reality is is thanks to Apple's work on the phone, you can live a fully encrypted life. Is, is it a little more inconvenient? It is, right? But like that's the trade off, right? right? And I think it's reasonable to have that trade off. You, uh, you know, I was thinking about this when you said that we were talking about email and how it's sort of like fundamentally in, in, insecure. And you know, I, I you know, my business is sort of built on email in, in some respect, right? right? And right. W- what is attractive about it is it is a feed that people check every day that I can get into for free, right? I don't need to pay a Facebook gate- gatekeeper or whatever it might be to get access to people. The, the email is open and free, and there's a like that's part of the trade off is it's because email is open and insecure that it is actually an accessible market for someone like me, for example, or that it's available anywhere and everywhere on any device. Like, and, and that's just the way these things work. The more encryption you want, the more defaults you want, not only is there a societal issue, there's a walled garden issue, right? The, 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 the more we put things uh, the more you lock things down, by definition, the less interoperability you're going to have, the, the less you're going to be able to sort of exchange data across different platforms, the more you're actually going to strengthen, you know, uh, uh, Apple's moat or strengthen yeah. Facebook's moat. And so if you care about competition, you're actually, th- these encryption questions are actually, there's another trade-off to think about. And and it's okay, it, again, I just, I, I hate absolutism on any of this in any direction because, there's reasonable trade-offs to make, and I think we're in an, a, a, a good spot because you can go all the way 
when it comes to encryption, but you don't have to, and and it's not even the default, and that's fine because as long as it's right. possible, I feel pretty good about things. Yeah, and again, like you pointed out, you you can still get cloud based backup with your I call them iTunes backups, but it, that includes the Finder one for Catalina. But the iTunes backup that is on your and it Mac works over Wi Fi too, right? So you don't you don't even like you don't even need to necessarily plug in your phone every day. It could just be when you come home every evening, and it it, yeah. it does that backup in the background, right? Uh, and you, you know, you kind of, at least, even if you're doing that, you kind of need to double check it once in a while because just make sure it's still doing, you don't want to be the guy who forgot that when you got a new MacBook Pro, you never up, you know, never made sure that was still working again and you haven't backed up for 13 months or something like that. I mean, that is the advantage to iCloud backup is it just happens automatically every night as your iPhone is connected to a charger. Yeah, even with the uh, Wi-Fi backup, you you need you you like you said you have some personal responsibility to make sure it's working, but that's the trade-off. But you can store that backup, you know, and use Backblaze or Dropbox or something, and there's nothing that can happen. Nobody can get into it, even when it's in Dropbox or or even iCloud. You could even put it on iCloud Drive. You know, you just can't use iCloud backup. Um, and the other thing that I think is a little counterintuitive, I touched on it a couple minutes ago, but if you're only backing up via your iTunes backup with a password, you can also use iMessage in the cloud in a completely secure way. Because once you run off iCloud backups, then the, the key is right, no longer there. Right. Because so. that, I, you know, I don't want to use the word backdoor, but that like asterisk for somebody to get into your iMessage in the cloud is because the key is stored in your iCloud backup. And if, it's, if you don't have an iCloud backup, they don't have a way to get that key. Um, I guess the other hole in that that you should think about if you're, <laughs> if you're doing crimes is okay, you've turned off iCloud backup and you're only encrypting to your mac or pc with a password that only you know but anybody you're communicating with by iMessage if they're using iCloud backup and the feds know you're collaborating with them they can subpoena their backup and you know see your end of the messages because they're backing it up to iCloud so yep. there is that to keep it in mind but it's good i it basically it's good to know how all this works and before the last month or so i didn't even know how all this worked and i know just based on my reading that lots and lots of readers didn't know how it worked and a lot of people were very surprised to find out that apple has a key to your icloud backup and again i don't think it's used willy-nilly i i don't know the process i don't I'm not quite sure everything they do to verify your id but it's not like, you know, I do think that on their side in iCloud, there is some sort of process and a logging, you know, like, hopefully, I would hope, you know, there's no way for a rogue Apple employee to, you know, uh, spy on a, a ex-partner or something like that or stalk them or something like that, you know, that there's some kind of uh, log of a Apple employee access to these keys to do it, but the fact that you don't know that we don't know how that works is one of the reasons why I emphasize that it's perfectly reasonable for someone to say, I don't want any part of this if they can access my data. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, last but not least, uh, I wanted to emphasize, I, th I, I think I was wrong about it or I was, I was ambiguous, but there's this whole thing where to get on your device, if, the, if the law enforcement or a criminal or a snoop or somebody has your iPhone, 
and they want to, they use one of these devices, you know, I guess it's mostly law enforcement, but one of these gray key devices or the Celebrite thing where they jailbreak the phone and then try to brute force the password by circumventing the 10 guest limit. Everything goes through to the secure enclave. And the big limiting factor, there's a key in the secure enclave that is part of the encryption. So there's no way to go around it. You know, it's not like, it's hard to understand. I can't profess that I understand it perfectly, but I understand the idea that one of the keys that encrypts everything on your iOS device is part of it is your password or your passcode, whatever you want to call it. But other another part is a unique hardware key in the secure enclave there's no way around it without that key mathematically. Um, and there's an 80 millisecond per guess time. That's eight hundredths of a second. So roughly 12 guesses would get you to like 96.96 of a second. So roughly 12 guesses a second is the limit that the thing that I think I was ambiguous about writing about it on daring fireball is that the 80 millisecond thing isn't like, an if statement in code where it's like, okay, there was a guess and then the next guess comes in and there's like, if 80 milliseconds have passed, okay, process it. But if not, you know, wait. And that somehow that could be hacked to either be longer, uh, like make it three seconds or in the case of someone trying to crack the phone, you know, set it to zero and then it will process them as fast as they can. Uh, it's not like that. It is, it, I'm 98% sure that the 80 millisecond thing is actually mathematically produced. It's there are al- well, it, well, what it is, is is the um the the there is a hardware key. The thing with the secure enclave is it's actually a processor, right? It's right. part of like it's a it's, it's like a, a mini computer in, in your computer, computer. Right. and it has its own software by the way also. And so th- this actually has a couple implications because uh the the so the you're right the, it tangles a, a a key that is burned into your phone when the like the, when the phone is produced and and is undiscoverable right you if like uh and so it, it's burned into your phone it's tangled with your pass your passcode to create like a a, a a hash to to encrypt all this sort of stuff and what happens is is the way that it's entangled to sort of untangle it mathematically requires it, it's meant to be a super inefficient yes. sort of calculation so that it it it, it can't be done faster than 80 milliseconds or right. 800 or whatever it is it, it literally takes that long and so right. it's not to your point it's not a software thing it's like it's a math thing it literally yeah. can't be done faster than that that then that however long it takes it's an algorithm apple deliberately chose because it would take 80 milliseconds on the processor that's built into the the secure enclave there's no way around it so the interesting thing that's a byproduct of that is the average time it takes for like one of these devices that has access jailbroken access to the iOS computer that can talk to the secure enclave computer and try to make guesses as fast as it can with this 12, 12 guesses per second. Um, how, what's the average time it would take to guess a passcode of different length? So you can just multiply how many characters are involved, uh, raised to the power of how many of them there are. So if you just have a numeric passcode, zero through nine, four digits, that's 10 to the power of four possible combinations, right? It's, you know, 10,000, 00002999. Um, and then the average time, you just divide that by two. 
and take a guess that on, you know, if you're guessing all of them, half the time you're going to guess one that's before you get halfway through. So the average time it would take to guess a four digit numeric passcode, seven minutes, six numbers is 11 hours. So those are the, that's the, the default option now. If you buy a new iPhone and just set it up from scratch, Apple's, you know, going through the, the wizard, whatever you want to call it when you start up. Um, basically steers you towards a six-digit numeric passcode. Uh, it only takes 11 hours for one of these devices to guess it at that 80 milliseconds per second. And double it, go to 22 hours, and you'll exhaust the entire space. So a maximum of 22 hours. Um, eight digits, if you go custom, 46 days. And then a 10-digit passcode, 12 years. So that's pretty good. <laughs> Right, you know what? Not just digit, but you can do alphanumeric passcodes. So then you're right. dramatically increasing the space because now it's 36 right. possible um, right. uh, uh, characters. Yeah, the well, other thing no, you- actually, and if you go uppercase, now you're up to uh, 62. And right. if, if you just count a handful of punctuation characters like underscores and hyphens and periods, you know, you can get up to 64, 65, 66 characters. Um, so just, you know, these are numbers from Jack Nickus from the times, but I did, you know, you can, you can do the math yourself. Like I said, if you, if you just count a 66 character space, 52 letters, uppercase, lowercase, 10 digits and the dash underscore period and comma or the hash sign or something or a space, you know, space is easy to type and is often good for memorizing, you know, passcodes, um, a four character alphanumeric seven days six characters seventy two years that's on average one hundred forty four years to exhaust the whole thing and eight characters just eight characters uh, uppercase lowercase and digits not even counting punctuation two hundred seventy six thousand years <laughs> so it, it, right there's and there's nothing Apple can do about it and right. no, this is like the um uh, I mean, I I was so exhaustive in researching this with the San Bernardino thing, and I realized this time I think because we've been talking about it too. There was actually more stuff because stuff has changed since then too. And one thing that's changed is you know what is done in the secure enclave and what's done via the OS. And the OS still controls the like wipe the phone yep. after X number of attempts, yep. and that's the big thing that they they want to erase. The other thing that I found out actually I wasn't clear on this, and and um and and and, and Apple got back to me about this was the um. Or uh, the there is because it's a serial enclave. It's like a mini computer in your computer, right? People think about it as being some sort of safe, but like we're dealing with the computer, right? And, right. and what it is is a mini computer with its own processor, uh, effectively. But that means it has its own software that's actually different from the OS software, and that software can be updated. You can update the software in the secure enclave. Uh, however, you do need the password to update the software, right. and, and so the the uh, so. Tech, theoretically, you could update the software in the secure enclave. You still can't escape the mathematical reality of, of, you know, sort of decrypting this. You could, but if you wanted to like maybe move the data to a different device that's faster, et cetera, that's still limited by, you would still need to change the software on the secure enclave itself. And that is limited by your passcode. Yeah. So basically Apple has made it so it has to be because of it, it's entangled with that, in that, that hardware on, uh, on the device, it has to be done on the device, which is mathematically limited to a 80 milliseconds. And uh, so, if you make an alphanumeric password of you know 
X number of characters. It doesn't matter what the FBI does or what Apple does. It's basically unbreakable. Yeah, and so the the eye-opening lesson from that is something I'd never really pondered before. And I will say, until two weeks ago, I had been using a six-digit numeric passcode on my iPhone and iPad ever since six digits became available. And before that, I was using four digits. Um Partly out of laziness, partly out of a, the perfectly reasonable, and I'm not trying to say I'm I'm virtuous. That it's actually just that I'm very boring. <laughs> that there's nothing, there's not a lot on my phone that that would be terribly upsetting for me if a thief cracked it and got. I mean, especially without my um, iCloud keychain, right? It still wouldn't get you into, uh, you know, like. Uh, my daring fireball server account or something like that, just because you got into my phone. I don't want to say I, I would relish it. I hope nobody does, but my thinking until recently was six digit passcode is good enough for me. Um, but when I saw these numbers and saw that, you know, it could be cracked in 11 hours on average and 22 at the max, I thought, you know what? I should do the right thing and switch to alphanumeric. Um, type of passcode. But the thing that to me, I want to emphasize, and I think it's a good tip, is when you think about this 80 millisecond limit, what we all know about picking good passphrases doesn't really apply to this. Like an eight character, for most uses, when we're picking a new password for an online account, everybody, you know, that a lot of places won't even let you take an eight, pick an eight character passcode because they say it's not long enough. Um, Eight characters, as long as you're using like uppercase, lowercase, and a digit or a punctuation mark, we're, you're literally talking hundreds of thousands of years to crack. <laughs> I mean, it's you can pick. You don't have to sacrifice a ton of convenience, and is what I'm trying to say. And yep. pick a 15 to 20 character passcode with a couple of punctu. You know where you, and, and where you're typing it on the phone, you're shifting between all of these keyboards. You know, it makes it all the harder to type. And you can't see what you've typed because they're coming up as bullets. And so if you make a typo, it's, you know, you're, you're typing it over and over again. You can err on the side of a very convenient passphrase that you wouldn't ordinarily use for most things and literally have your phone be secured for a hundred thousand years of cracking attempts. You know, that's right. Yep. Eight or nine characters and you're really good, really good. Right, because those those passcodes generally they're like they're running them on like supercomputers, right? Yeah. And that's why they have to be super long and complicated. Right. And even then, they can they can like eighty milliseconds. It sounds like a small amount of time in computer world. It's just an astronomically long amount of time right. that that you can right. definitely use to your advantage. Yeah, and the, I'll just repeat something that Glenn emphasized, but it's worth memory. But is that asterisk? So long as you don't pick a dictionary word. Where the dictionary isn't necessarily like the Scrabble dictionary, but like common dictionary of people's common passwords, like P A S S W zero R D. Yeah, don't use that one because <laughs> they're gonna. Any smart cracker is gonna run through commonly used passwords like that before they start guessing by iterating through all possible combinations. So as long as you pick something that you can memorize and isn't a commonly used word or a password or your firstborn child's birth date in numbers with slashes, uh, you are good for hundreds of thousands of years and you do not need – it's in fact counterproductive. You're just wasting typing and thumbs and your time by picking a 20-character passphrase that you would use if you were setting up a new uh, account online. 
And this is for your phone password specifically, like, yeah. like your your device uh, passcode. Okay. And I have to say, now that I've changed mine to an alphanumeric, I have to say now it it really has become clear how seldom I have to enter it. Really, it it, it really does not come up very often. I had to do it today because I just upgraded to the new. There's a new iOS dot release, and so I had to you know type it you know type it to allow the up update to install and type it once the phone restarted. And I was like, I haven't typed this in days. Well, it turns out uh, if you're uh, in Asia and you're wearing a medical mask, uh, you, you actually end up putting it in a lot because your face doesn't uh, work anymore. You know what? We have to. Get, we'll have to touch on that after the break. I have to take a break. But I just on, on, I went out today. Oh, I have to. T- I should tell you the story. I had to go to the post office today, uh, and on my way, I saw two two uh, Asian people. I don't know. You know, I have no idea if they're tourists. I don't know if they live here. I don't know what. But they were Asian, and they were wearing medical masks. And I'm just like, do you know something? I don't know. Like, I'm trying not to get freaked out by this whole coronavirus thing, and not get you know. There's a germaphobe in me that's that's dying to get out, and I'm like, <laughs> seeing people walking around the street with medical masks. I'm like, should I have one of those? Should I get one of those? I don't know. Uh, you, I think you're okay with that one. Yeah, I think so too. But anyway, let me take a break and thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Casper. Casper makes sleep products. What a weird category, but it's true. That's what they make. Designed by humans for humans. Their products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. Mattresses, that's where they started. You spend one-third of your life sleeping. You should be comfortable. You should have a great mattress. You get it from Casper, you can get a great mattress without spending a lot of money. They have their own team. It's not like they buy like white-label mattresses and just slap a Casper sticker on them. They have their own Sleep engineers, mattress engineers who design their mattresses. Totally, totally like part of the tech industry. They've got engineers. Their original Casper mattress, that's the one that was the only Casper mattress for a while, combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of sink and bounce. We've got one of those. We got one of those way back in the day when Casper first started sponsoring the show. Still as good as new. It is still, uh, you wouldn't know it, it's a years-old mattress, still as good as new. Absolutely lasts. It's a great mattress. has a breathable design, helps you sleep cool, regulates your body temperature throughout the night. They also now offer two other mattresses. Actually, three other mattresses. I'm wrong. They've got the Wave, the Essential, and the Hybrid. I forgot about the Hybrid. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system. This is their high-end model. Uh, it's a really, it's, it's the high-end model, but not a super high-end price. Then they've got the Essential. That's their streamlined design at a price that, quote, won't keep you up at night. That's a lower price model. Still a great mattress. And then the Hybrid, that's their newest one. It combines the pressure relief of the award-winning foam that their other mattresses have always been made with, with durable yet gentle springs. They also offer, this is what I talk about, sleep products. They also offer a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets to ensure an overall better sleep experience. And it's all designed, developed, and assembled right here in the U.S. They've got affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. Hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied and your mattress gets delivered right to your door in an unbelievably small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box. Free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada for our friends up north. Uh, they've got a 100-night, 100 100-night, 100 Risk-free, sleep-on-it trial. 
So if you're worried, which is perfectly reasonable, you think, well, how the hell am I going to buy a mattress if I don't even try it? You can do it, sleep on it for over three months and decide whether you want to keep it. And if you don't, they'll take it. No questions back, no questions asked. They'll come pick it up, give you all your money back. That's how confident they are that you're going to love your Casper mattress. We've got a couple of them in the house. I think we're up to three. We love them. They're just great. Uh, we miss them when we travel and we come home. And we're like, ah, oh, back on our beloved Casper mattresses. We really do like them. Uh, you can get, here's a special offer for listeners of the show. You get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com, C-A-S-P-E-R, casper.com slash talk show. And using that same code as the URL slug, talk show at checkout. And you will save 100 bucks towards select mattresses. That's casper.com slash talk show with the code talk show. Terms and conditions. Terms and conditions both apply. Oh, I, went, I had to go to the post office, Ben. This, it's, uh, this is the type of story I usually tell at the beginning of a show. But uh, I, I never had... you have a P.O. box? I don't know what they've got over there in uh, Taiwan. Uh, I don't I don't in Taiwan. I do have one in the U.S. Yeah, I've never had one, and I've always wanted one. Because, you, know, you, you know, I run a business, and people want to send me things, and it... You know, I don't. You know, I'm always. You know, I'm a private person. I don't want to send out my my home address to to anybody. Uh, I live in a city. There's post offices nearby. That's not really inconvenient. Why don't I have a PO box? I always I put it off for years, years now, years and years and years. And I broke down. I went and got it. <clears throat> Turns out, the way you get one is you have to go to the web first. You got to go to the USPS.com. You sign up for a PO box, and you say which post office do you want it at and what size. And then you can prepay right there over the web, and then they tell you, print these two forms, and then one form comes in when you print it. It already has all your info. It's nice. You know, it pre-fills a whole bunch of stuff like your name and your address and um, you know, some kind of code that verifies that you've paid. Uh, and then you got to go to your post office with these forms and two forms of ID, and then they give you the P.O. box. So I go over there today. This is when I, I saw the saw the pedestrians with their medical masks on freaked me out and then i immediately start thinking well where's the number one place where you could pick up this virus probably the freaking post office i go in there and there's no line it's like it feels like i've already won the jackpot right how many times in the u.s you don't really go to the post office and see no line no line but there's only one person behind the counter how's this possible so i walk right up got my paperwork i got my id takes, I don't know, more time than I would think, given that all this paperwork's pre-filled. More time than I would think to process, but I wait. And she says, all right, I got to go find a key. She disappears in the back. And meanwhile, one or two people have now gotten in line behind me. Still nobody else working. Minutes pass, and I, a minute, several minutes pass. More people get in line. I hear the jingling of keys behind wherever she's gone behind there. I hear keys jingling. Nothing. Finally, you know, people start talking to me. They're like, hey, what are you, you know, what's going on? You know, like, <laughs> what, what are we all waiting for? And I said, I, I'm getting a P.O. box. <laughs> and they're like, well, why, where'd she go? And I said, she said she had to get a key. Uh, and, and, you know, and I was, you know, I'm starting to feel self-conscious, basically, right? Because I'm holding them up. Even though I don't really think this is my fault, I feel like going to the post office for a P.O. box is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I start looking around, and you can see the P.O. boxes, and I start sort of mentally guessing how many they have. It looks to me as though they have at least a 1,000. I would guess if I had to, you know, you know, like guessing jelly beans in a jar to win a, a raffle or something like that, I would guess maybe they have 2,000 post office P.O. boxes, 
Um, doesn't seem like an unusual thing to do. <laughs> and then at this point, I had, I had like looked at my watch, and ten minutes pass, <laughs> ten full minutes. <laughs> I still hear keys jingling back there. And now, and thankfully, I will say to my fellow Philadelphians who were there in line, I feel I'm feeling very self conscious. Every single person was nothing but kind, and, and everybody's laughing and joking. Nobody nobody was uh, soured by this, but. I have to say, I felt very self-conscious about the whole thing. <laughs> and then she comes out and says, I couldn't find the key. I'm going to have to change the lock on a box. <laughs> oh. So, and then she's like, so come back tomorrow. <laughs> that's, that's where I left it. You still don't have a PO box. Well, yeah, but she gave me the keys. <laughs> she gave me the keys to the lock that they were going to put on the box. So I have keys to a PO box, but I don't. I don't have a PO box. Anyway, that's my that's that's that was my afternoon. Oh, <laughs> uh, what do you want? I th- we got, we should just dig into iPad. What do you think? Well, yeah, time to start the show. Uh, yeah, time to start the show. An hour hour and a half in. Yeah, yesterday or no, not yesterday. Two days ago was the ten year anniversary of the uh, the event where Steve Jobs introduced the iPad and. Uh, you know, for ten's a nice round number. Lots and lots of people memor you know, remembering what it was like that day. With people of the press who were there, people posting their original reviews, people saying where they think the iPad stands. Um, and I got, I, I used it as an opportunity to get a lot off my chest. <laughs> and and like you said, you and I have talked about this privately many times. And it's almost to the point where it's almost like I. One of the reasons, like, and there were a couple of people who were like, "Where has this rant been? Why is you know why did it take you so long to write this?" I've been thinking the same thing for so long. And part of it is I've got notes for a lot of complaints about the iPad, and you know the director's commentary of daring fireball aspect of the show is that I've been meaning to write a, a deeply critical pieces a, a deeply critical piece about the state of the ipad software for well over a year um and i well, have I think longer than that yeah like we, we've been we've been talking about this for a while like i said when you finally posted it i'm like i'm like didn't you already post this because <laughs> we've been talking privately about this particular thing right uh for for the, ages and the pathology of it in in my the the weird parts of my brain is that i've been thinking of it as a massive like Four, five, six thousand word epic during Fireball post where I get it all out at once in a single narrative that makes complete sense and convinces everybody from Tim Cook on down that yes, this is all right. We should change it all. And here it is. It's a home run that was hit out of the park. And I started writing about the ten year anniversary of the iPad, and I was like, you know what? I I should just break the ice on this and just get the highest level part of it off my chest, and I could do it in a couple hundred words, and then just do the rest in follow up pieces. And why in the hell did it take me three years to figure it out that that would be a much more effective way for me to actually get this off my chest? Um, and it was funny because um, uh, I I wrote about it as well, building on top of you, and you know you could tell that because you, you, uh, someone posted on Twitter like, "Oh, could I let John have all the fun right about the iPad?" Right, right. I'm like, 
I'm like, no, actually, I said something cryptic in response. But the truth is, you, like, you, you, you're like, okay, I've got this started. Can you please come in and, yeah. and jump on top of it? Right. And so that was why, like, I, right. I did it as a as sort of an email daily update first, and then switched it to being a public post, which is more. It's interesting to your point, right? So to make something a public post is like it feels so much weightier and more difficult than just dashing an email together. And then you like so switching from one that was I mean, dashed together is not right, but like when you. Write, when I write the daily update for subscribers, by definition, they're people who have been reading me for a while and they kind of already know where I'm coming from on certain issues. And so you can presume a certain sort of like uh, leeway as opposed to like when you're writing a public article or it might be the first article they read on your site and you want to be much more – have everything wrapped mm-hmm. up in a bow and all the, all the things tied together. Um, but I kind of felt the same way as you is like uh, like once you had written it, I'm like – I'm like, oh, wait, I, I've been wanting to say all this stuff too. So I'm just, I'm jumping on <laughs> and, and it's going to be out there and we're going to podcast about it. So I might as well make it public. So here we are. And to say that reaction was mixed is an understatement. I, I would almost say it was so bifurcated. I expected it though. It was so bifurcated and I got more. Yes, I agree with this here, here. Finally, somebody is saying what I've been trying to say sort of reactions. But I've also I also got uh, a bunch of you're the, the, you're just an old old guy who loves the Mac and you don't get it sort of things. A um, couple of them they all mention the word old, <laughs> uh, and part of that is a frustration. It's just human nature, but I find it deeply frustrating. And it's this aspect of human nature where everybody is drawn towards, and and I do feel like our society and internet culture has only added a lot of fuel to the fire of this natural impulse to make everything black or white binary. It is the greatest thing ever, or it is a total piece of steaming garbage. Everything, you know, what, what do you think of the rises of, of uh, Skywalker? Great, great star Wars movie. I love it. Or it is JJ Abrams should be put in prison. He's, you know, this is awful. This is the worst movie ever made. Right, that's what people are drawn to. That's how internet reactions have gone. And despite the fact that I emphasized that the iPad is a beloved, something I like, something I use every day, something that I realized that a lot of people, it's their most beloved personal computing device, and they're very effective and efficient with it. Something that I called great, even, but also has serious flaws. It you have to be willing to accept nuance in my criticism of the iPad did not register with people who love the iPad or at least some. Oh, it's so it's so true and like it, it, I'll verify like you are one of the heaviest iPad users that I that I know personally. Like you're like this is a um it's not a like if it, I'm the one that's more dismissive yeah. about it in many respects. Um cuz I actually use it less than I did before. But but no, just to your point, what people stroke were neither of us are saying it's a failed product. Right. It, it's it's a it's what it it's not everything it could have been right and this is one of the hardest are to your i i get this i know exactly what you're talking about it's like you have to look at something not as it is but what it uh, as it could be and it's okay to recognize and bemoan that there's some sort of potential or some sort of possibility that was perhaps not reached yeah and i am self-professed Mac person, and I probably always will be, and even in the hypothetical universe where the iPad 10 years in was much closer to its potential of where it could be 10 years in, 
still probably would be a Mac person. Um, but I would rather be in that world because I'd rather have it be a fair fight. Whereas the things that really frustrate me about the iPad aren't even a fair fight compared to the Mac. And I don't see how anybody could deny it. And I do, I don't want to generalize. I really don't. But I, to, to put uh, Apple computing users into three buckets, and I realize that lots and lots of them are in, are in all three, or at least two, um, but there's iPhone users, and there's iPad users, and there's Mac users. And again, I'm all three. Lots of people are, almost everybody has an iPhone, right? There's very few Apple people in the Apple ecosystem who don't at least have an iPhone. If, you know, maybe it's their only device, or maybe it's the one thing they have in addition to a Mac or an iPad, but, um, people who use the iPhone. So I'm not saying that there are three different groups, but I'm just saying people who use the iPhone will complain about aspects of the iPhone interface. Mac users, we've been complaining about the Mac all along. Like nobody's, nobody is a bigger and more astute critic and loves to complain about aspects of the Mac going back to 1984 than people who love the Mac the most. The people who love the Mac the most are the most astute critics of everything that's wrong about the Mac. Look at John Syracuse's epic uh, Ars Technica reviews of it, and you know, which you know would talk about new features and when they were confusing or wrong or or slow or whatever he was the one who who wrote the most words about them um ipad users not all you know like federico vitici to his credit who is who is probably the most efficient ipad user i i've ever heard of has built his entire uh, you know he's a super productive person who does uh, writes all you know thousands and thousands of words a week and does podcasts and does all this work on his iPad and shares his his techniques and shortcuts and stuff like that to his readers you know it's a lot of what he writes about is at the meta level of how to be a iPad power user is also it fully acknowledges, you know, some of the things that I'm talking about as shortcomings, you know, so there's certainly not everybody. That's what I mean about not generalizing, but boy, oh boy, are there a lot of people out there <laughs> who love their iPads, use it as their primary computing device and do not want to hear one bad word about it. <laughs> there is a, sort of emperor's new clothes aspect to it where they're like, Hey, these people who are saying the emperor has no, is buck naked. They're just haters. Well, I think it's interesting because you, you get this with Apple just sort of as a, yes, yes. where, where, where Apple is part of people's, like there's no other company where people who have Twitter handles that includes the company's logo in them. Right. Like there's, there's an aspect of Apple that ties into people's identity. Like they're an Apple person. And I think that, is taken to 11 when it comes to the iPad, right? If you're an iPad person, like you're, that is like, <laughs> that's what you do. Like you, you have made this commitment. You've made it this end of your life. You're, you're living in the future. You're not an old fogey, you know, using, you, you using a, a Mac or a PC. And it's, and it's not something that you do sort of like, <laughs> I don't know. Again, we're, a real danger in writing online something you you have to learn as an author uh very early is that your twitter commenters are not your core readership right it's a, it's a sort of a fraction of the fraction but i think there is an aspect where 
you all the things that you and I both know are the case for for sort of Apple fans is just double the case when it comes to being sort of an an, an iPad person. Yeah, like if you run a restaurant, the people who want to speak to the manager aren't necessarily indicative of the entire clientele of the restaurant. Um, right. The, but I well, it, well, but it's funny because there, there's an argument where that sort of makes the point, right? Like, why why would it be part of your identity if it's something that's super accessible and easy for everyone to use, right? There, right. There's an aspect where it is special to use the iPad for all of your computing, and the reason it's special is our entire point. It shouldn't be so special. Right. It should be more broadly accessible. Yeah, absolutely, should be. And I really do find it hard. I, I, I think that the only one of the reasons that we find ourselves in this situation 10 years in is that I, I think there has to be a contingent within Apple that is the, in, within Apple who is the same way, who thinks this is, this is fine, you know, because look at our sales. We're selling, you know, 10, 11, 12 million of the things every quarter, quarter after quarter. And, you know, there's so many things to love about it and that these other things, they must be fine and they're not fine. There, there's some of these things are truly screwed up. And, and my, one of the things I devoted my attention to in my piece this week is the multitasking interface. And I tried to make it clear. I think it was clear. It doesn't seem like people were confused, but when I talk about multitasking with iPad, what I mean is putting two apps on screen at a time. It is in the user interface sense of seeing two things at a time, whether it's side by side apps or slide over or side by side with slide over. Somebody, a couple of people pointed out that my, you can show two and only two apps at a time is wrong because you can have two apps on screen with split screen and then do a slide over. Um, you know, all right, you got me. Um, I think, you know, that's what I mean by multitasking. I don't mean it in the computer science sense because, you know, we've had multi, quote unquote, multitasking in the computer science sense of multiple processes running on the iPad all along. There've always been background processes running, you know, to get new mail or to have incoming SMS or phone calls answered and stuff like that. So, you know. Right. First, the phone multitasks. Right. Right. right in, in sort of a, a technological sense. Right. But that, that's not what you're referring but to. But the split screen stuff, putting two apps on screen at a time. Is in my opinion a fiasco. I really and and I, part of me procrastinated on getting this off my chest because I, I like I said I I I wanted to do too much at once in one epic piece. I wanted to hit one baseball that literally went out out of Yankee Stadium, not just knock a couple singles up the middle over a period of a couple of days and score some you know win a couple of games, which is what I think I should have done and I'm going to try to do going forward. Um. But it, it it's 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 bad and it's confusing and I I I mean I got so many responses from people who I know are smart really smart technical users people who uh, you know Jeremy Zawadny who wrote literally wrote like the O'Reilly book on SQL <laughs> like was like yeah I had no idea how to do, I had no idea you could get two apps on screen at once on an iPad <laughs> I mean really smart people who either a didn't know how to do it or like like me sometimes get into it and don't know how to get out of it. Like God forbid you end up with two instances of Safari with two different sets of tabs. And then you try, Oh my God. It's like, where the hell is the one that's open? It's like, Oh, there's two versions of Safari. Now it reminds me of like the old versions of windows, like windows three, you could like click Excel and then Excel is running. And if you click the Excel icon again, it doesn't open Excel. It it, it would open another instance of Excel. (laughs) 
And you could have like multiple documents in both instances. And it's like, who the hell thought that was a good idea? Well, that's the iPad. The iPad does that. You can have like two completely different instances that you can't get together. And if you connect a hardware keyboard and you hit command tab, it acts like it's a Mac or a Windows computer and just shows one icon for every app that's running. And you go to Safari, but you have two instances of Safari running in your iPad spaces. Which one comes forward? Well, toss a coin because I can't figure out what the heuristic is. And there's no way to get to the other one via command tab. It's, it is really confusing. I mentioned my mom who uh, has somehow, I don't know what exactly she's done. It typically involves mail. Um, I think for the most part, my mom uses, she uses her iPad a lot. Let me just emphasize that. In a house with an iMac, my dad's more of an iMac guy. I think he likes having the big screen. My mom uh, really loves her iPad. I mean, just really, really loves it. She th- thrives on it. She does more computing than she did before. Um, just for the record, she's 74 years old. Very smart, but not technically inclined at all. Sort of defensive about her lack of technical in- inclination. Is always afraid that she's broken something. When she first called me with this problem, she was convinced she broke her iPad because she'd go to mail, and now mail was side-by-side with Safari in a little skinny iPhone-sized window. Didn't know how to get out of it. Uh, I explained how she could drag the divider to make mail go full screen again, but then every time she'd just tap a link in mail, it would open again in in split screen in Safari. And she it, she was confused and didn't know how to get out of it. And it's very, very difficult thing to talk somebody through on the phone much more difficult than any Mac thing I've ever talked her through in 15, 20 years of talking my mom through any kind of problem. You know, like over the like they've made it harder to do this now. Like when you drag an icon out of your dock on the Mac, it, you have to drag it a lot further away before it'll poof and vanish. You know, if you just drag I, it. I, I think by default it might be impossible. I can't remember. Anything, no, you have to. Dra- yeah. If you drag it really far away, it'll poof away. But in the old days, if you just dragged it out of the dock, like one of your saved icons, like I want this icon, I want Safari always in my dock. Well, you know, you mouse and you know, uh, not an expert mouse user, maybe you know, or my dad did it. You know, drag instead of clicking Safari, he clicked and held a little bit, then moved the mouse, and then Safari poofed out of the dock. And then, from my parents' perspective, if if it's not in the dock, it's gone, right? Like the, uh, you know. Phone call, dad deleted Safari. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk them through that though, right? I could talk them through like using Spotlight or something to get Safari and then just drag it back, you know, into the dock. And there it is. I could talk her through it on the phone. Talking somebody like my mom through this split screen stuff is madness because there's one of the things I didn't mention, but I want to write about is the fact that it's all gesture based, almost all. And there's no visual on-screen controls. Just think about like in the, on the Mac with Windows. And I'm not saying that iPad should have draggable windows that overlap, but I think they could learn some stuff from the Mac. So in a Mac, if you have, no matter what app you're in and you have a window open, how do you close it? Well, there's a red button up in the left, upper left-hand corner. And if you click that red button, the window closes. And everybody knows it. Nobody doesn't know it. And it doesn't matter what app you're in. There's a red button up there, and you can click that button and close it. And yes, I know that you can switch to the graphite theme, and it'll be gray buttons. And I've run in graphite mode over the years on and off. 
But normal people don't even know that's possible and would never want to run in the graphite mode where it's a gray button. There's always a red button. You can click it. It closes the window. How do you close one of these split-screen panels? Good luck. <laughs> Sometimes you can drag the divider. If it's on the left, you can't. You can't just close it. It's crazy. Anyway, the good news about this is, this is after. My mom actually read the thing on Daring Fireball. And then she, you know, she saw that I mentioned her. She called me up. And she said, yeah, guess what? I figured it out. Because one thing, I, I guess I knew this and I forgot it. There is, in fact, a setting on the iPad. And it's not in accessibility. And the fact that it's not in accessibility to me is sort of like a tacit admission that this multitasking stuff can be confusing. You can go to um, settings. And then what's it called? Let me make sure I get it right. Settings. Uh, home screen and dock. And then you hit multitasking and you can just allow multiple apps, you can just turn it off. She figured that out on her own. And then once you turn that off, you can't do slide over or split screen multitasking. Just doesn't happen. And um, for me, one of the big advantages to that is when you're in Safari and you tap and hold a link and there's like a context menu that comes up. And what I usually want to do is tap open a new tab. But when you have allow multiple apps on, Right next to open a new tab is open a new window. And you say you can accidentally tap that because it's one, you know, finger width away. And now all of a sudden you're stuck with two instances of Safari. Oh, anyway, my mom figured it out on her own and turned that off and wanted me to let everybody know that uh, she's no longer bedeviled by split screen uh, iPad multitasking because she turned it off. Just getting like, and just think about the fact that on the Mac, nobody ever wants to turn off the ability to show two apps at the same time. Nobody, there's nobody's ever been bedeviled by the fact that there's a Safari window peeking out behind your mail window. Nobody's ever been bedeviled or confused by this. Nobody ever wants, boy, I sure wish I could turn that off. Yeah, it, I mean, the, the so what I did to sort of follow up on this was sort of think about how you know how how we got to this point, right? Like, why why is it that that Apple went in this direction? And you know, the uh, you go back to the beginning. This, this is why the ten year yeah ten year period was a great time to look back because you go back and think about the way that Jobs talked about the iPad and and what it was positioned as, and you know, there is this the iPad was. The it, it, it all it is is a screen, right? It it is the sort of the essence of of a computer. You know, uh, you know, John Syracuse talks about the like naked robotic core. Like this is the this is what it is, and it, and it was so transformational and impressive because it becomes whatever you want it to be, and in a way that a Mac never can. Right? The, the, to your point, that there's going to be a lot of Chrome on a Mac, not the browser, but the, all the all the infrastructure and detrius of the sort of user interface is, is always there and it needs to always be there because that's how you manage sort of the complexity of what you can accomplish on the Mac. Whereas the iPad is something completely different. The iPad, it, it, it becomes a music studio. It becomes a, an editing application. It becomes a drawing surface, like, which is, remains my biggest use case for the iPad. I do the drawings of, right. for Shrekery on it. It becomes a TV, right? You know, I, the other use cases, I watch NBA games on it, right? Yeah. It, 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 and this is a, this is such a powerful, powerful concept and it's distinctly different than what a Mac is. Yeah. A Mac is a tool for, for doing different things. A, a, an iPad is a, 
not an illusionist. I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a, a chameleon? Like it, it, yeah. it, or it becomes whatever the thing that you're doing is. And th- this, uh, and what, where the reason why we'll, we'll get to how we got there in a moment, but the reason why I think the multitasking idea and model on the iPad is fundamentally flawed is it imposes the, the, the Chrome, the detritus of the operating system onto a, a, a surface that ought to be a transformative, uh, you know, shape changing sort of thing, right? And, and you lose, you lose that. You lose that ability for an iPad to change what it is because you're imposing this sort of stuff on top of it that doesn't make sense in the context of, <laughs> uh, of that, of that sort of view of it. Yeah. But I'll acknowledge, I'll, I'll, I will acknowledge, because people keep saying, one of the responses is, well, I use the split screen thing. I use my iPad all day. It's my main computer. And I love the split screen. Not Nobody's defended the actual interface. Nobody has said it's a fantastic interface for getting two apps on screen at once. They just say that they love the capability because they do use it. They love having their notes open next to a video you know they're watching a video and they're taking notes on the video because they can split screen it or something like that i i get that and i do think it should be possible but i think it i just think it should be possible in a way where it is it should be super easy and obvious how you get back to one thing at a time that transforms the device you you emphasized in your piece the garage band demo which wasn't from the original iPad event, it was the right. iPad two event one year later, and it was uh, one of Jobs' last on stage appearances. I, he he was at WWDC then, which was his last uh, on stage appearance. But the GarageBand demo really was, and that I didn't I I, I just haven't had time. I've, I did a lot of writing. I, I didn't sit down and watch the whole iPad intro again. I kind of, it's on my list for something to do this week, probably maybe the weekend. Um, but I did watch that, and I do have to say, man, I do remember being blown away by that. That GarageBand demo from the the, the one year in thing was really, really interesting. Totally counter to that narrative that runs to this day that it's a device for consumption, not for creation. And the point you made that was so great is the GarageBand on iPad was immersive and transformed the device in a way that GarageBand for Mac never could just by the definite, you know, like it just it, all of a sudden the iPad is a piano, right? It doesn't look like a piano and you type, you use a mouse to click keys or you type, you know, keys on a physical, a QWERTY keyboard and it simulates piano keys. It just turns into piano keys and you touch them and they go down and it makes music. It, 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 it was incredible. And like the, I mean, we can get into it in a moment. I actually, I would go much further than you. I, th- I think that the, even having the sort of multitasking capability on the iPad is a mistake in what we're talking about. Um, so, uh, well, <laughs> that, that's obviously a much more controversial take, but right. just to follow up on this, uh, the, you know, People, there's a lot of pushback on, oh, the iPad is for creation, not just consumption. Uh, if you go back and watch the first one, it's clearly framed as a consumption device, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the, like, they, Jobs literally sat on a couch for the demo yeah. because he wanted to emphasize that it is more of a layback, lean back sort of experience as opposed to a lean forward yeah. at your desk, uh, you know, sort of Mac experience. And so, it, like, it's not a, and, 
for good reason. It's an amazing consumption device, right? The you know for uh, again, the, I use it all the time for watching for watching sports. Like the that's what I you know because I'm international, so I watch it through League Pass and and, and MLB TV and whatever, and and I do use it on the iPad, and it's great for that. And you can take it with you, and it's a great experience. We're having a larger screen than your phone is really super desirable because you want to see things clearly. Uh, you know, but. Kids watch Netflix or YouTube or whatever on it. Yeah. Like it's it's an amazing consumption experience, and it remains that. Yeah. And I think, as far as we can tell, that is what even today, ten years on, the vast majority of iPads are used for. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, it's not. I think there was a there was a sense for a while where. Uh, you know, people writing about Apple were sort of defensive about the iPad being called a consumption device, but actually, that's what it is, right? Yeah. Like, like first and foremost, and and that was there on on day one, and it's embraced so far across the line. I mean, MLB has always been at a technical level ahead of the other sports leagues in the U.S. Um, I, I don't know why, it's maybe because they were in decline in popularity, you know, and it is the stuff, you know, it's the oldest sport, um, but like the MLB team, you know, was the ones they were the ones who solved the problem like when hbo first tried to started trying to stream video and <laughs> servers burst into flames by people trying to watch game of thrones they went to the mlb team and the mlb team were the ones who figured out how to stream it and then disney bought that business from mlb because i actually think that their technology probably is at the heart of uh, disney plus now that i think about it I hadn't really thought That's about right. it it is no disney acquired them yeah. yeah and it's 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 very it's good it's very strong technology like, it's, it's really it's Strong. And if you're impressed by the fact that Disney Plus launched with all this fanfare and went off seamlessly and you just hit play on Mandalorian and it just comes up and plays, it's thanks to the technology they acquired from MLB. Um, yeah, it's really – yeah, I was pretty sure that, that they're at the heart of that. Really, really, really strong technology leading, leads the industry. I mean, is up there. I mean, I know Netflix is great too, but it's it's as good no, as but it you, gets. You talk to Netflix engineers and they will say, yeah, the only other streaming technology worth the crap is yeah. is, is, is uh, the, the – it's called BAM Tech now. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah what was BAM? Uh, baseball Advanced Media or something like that. But they just went – because it's no longer just baseball. It's, yeah, BAM Tech. Um, NBA, culturally – is certainly far ahead of the other leagues in terms of being up to date and embracing social media. I mean, uh, NBA Twitter is like no other sports Twitter. And we could do a whole show on that. And I know you probably spend 12 hours a day on with your no tech Ben Twitter account on it. Um, so it's not surprising to me that the NBA also has a really good streaming experience. No, to iPads. the streaming experience is terrible. Well, it's, it's or at least they awful. try. Or at least they try. They try. They try. Yeah. But the one that blows me away is that the NFL has really embraced it. And Part of it is that I have a cable subscription still, and I've registered through it. But I watched an awful lot of NFL football this year on my iPad instead of on TV, and it's really good technically, but it's just amazing to me that the NFL of all networks, which is the one that is the most dominant, has the most money, and is sort of therefore the the least likely to embrace something new – uh, the iPad is like a first class client for watching live NFL games now. And it's just, that it just blows me away. Like in a way that your computer can't be and that you wouldn't want it. It's too small. You don't want to watch it on your phone. I mean, I know people do watch on their phone, but it's no good. You, you watch know. on your phone because it's the only way to watch right. it, right? Right. Because you're whereas, at, whereas you would voluntarily watch something on the iPad because right. Right. You're, you're at like, you like a, wanna, you're at like a kid's birthday party and there's a game you want to watch. Okay. You're going to watch at your phone. <laughs> 
but right exactly but yeah. watching on your ipad is like totally credible it is like absolutely totally credible and keeps up to anyway it's just it is a great i don't want to get too sidetracked from our complaints but it is a great consumption device and it is it's it's a better tv than my tv yep that's exactly no it's exactly right and you get it's disruptive in a way right to take this sort of full circle because you can at layer on sorts all sorts of stuff and and things that you can't have on 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 your TV um but but the in the interactivity and and the portability but while also having this large screen that you know holding an iPad right in front of you relative to a large TV on the wall like the actual viewing experience is actually it much the difference is much smaller than 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 you might think it is uh, and the screen quality is incredible, and all, all those sorts of things. But at, at the um, at the initial iPad launch, they also showed iWork, and the mm. and it was it was also kind of a mind blowing demo in that they were doing this really cool stuff uh, with you know where inserting stuff and moving stuff around with your fingers, and there was there was the hint of something there. And and I wrote about um, you know I, I've I had a few sort of false starts as far as. Uh, blogs going through the years, but uh, I had like a, a, a Tumblr back in the day uh, that where I wrote about the iPad when it launched, and um, you know I talked about it, you know where where it, where it fit relative to the phone and relative to the computer. But at the end, I'm like, you know, what's really compelling here is is the, is the you know I focus on content consumption. I'm like, this is clearly a content consumption device. That, I'm going to take, take one time out. I'm just going to tell you right now as a listener. I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember this. I'm going to put that graphic you're talking about is going to be the album art as we talk right now so you could just look at your phone and look at the album art you'll see you'll see the drawing ben's talking about all right keep going <laughs> well a 10 year old drawing some of which holds up better than than others but you know begin you go back and you know one of the things that that is that's constricted the ipad over time is that phones now are so much larger but you remember back in 2010 you're dealing with a 3.5 inch crappy screen where you really didn't want to be watching an nba game on that the ipad was just incredible like it was so much larger and, and better but i put at the end so, so that article is focused on it as a content consumption device. But at the end, I'm like, look, there's something else here. Like, what was I mentioned that I worked demo? I'm like, you can do stuff that you just can't do on a computer because you're directly manipulating it. Now, the implication is there's stuff you can do on a computer that you can't do on an iPad. But it, it, it was new. It was something different and new. And that's where the 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 GarageBand demo and the the, the iPad two announcement comes in for me. Like, the, it was. It, like as someone who has dabbled around in sort of these music creation apps and, and, and you know, I'm a, a piano player and stuff like that. It was so mind blowing. That's the only time I've ever stood in line for, for, uh, an Apple product. I had to get the iPad too. And I was going on a plane that night to Taiwan and I downloaded GarageBand and I spent the entire 12 hour flight just like making songs. Like it was, it was, it's hard. It was mind blowing. It was absolutely incredible. The way that you could just, you could do stuff that wasn't really possible. Again, it was technically possible on a computer, but the user interface and experience was just transformative on the iPad. It was, it was absolutely incredible. And what was so, um, and you saw in jobs knew it, right? Like yeah. it's, it's, it's one of my all-time favorite jobs on stage moments is the like 15 seconds after the demo and he's on there and he's just like like he's like he's used this he he was involved in the creation of it he knew the demo they'd run through it and even then he just looks astonished right yeah. like he's like like I can't believe like and to me it it was a wonderful moment that that I reflected on a lot when Jobs passed away later that year is I'm glad that he was able to have that moment 
uh, as an exec because it was it was to my mind the culmination of like his life's work because he comes on there and he's like it's isn't it incredible and then he's and then he he says something like he's like he's like now anyone can make music yep. and like that that's what that that he wanted the computer for 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 anyone that anyone could unlock their creati- creativity anyone could do this because it was so much more intuitive and so much more approachable and direct. And, and well, and fundamentally, it was fundamentally less powerful. Yeah, it, like you could not do in GarageBand what you could do in Logic, or we can do in GarageBand on the Mac. There, because you're limited to the direct interaction, it was fundamentally less powerful. But it was disruptive in the best sense of the word. It did not meet the needs of of true musicians who were wanting to make a, a huge sort of you know make a professional song. But it meant it was way more accessible to way more people to actually build their own songs. Right. And 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 the and to me that was what was so amazing and compelling about the iPad and what I feel we've never really seen the, the, the full manifestation of was this possibility of completely new kinds of applications, new kinds of computing that would open up the power of computers to to so many more people. And that's why the, the, the whole discussion of the multitasking thing is so uh, – like I, 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 it's so frustrating to me because we're debating – this these power user features that are like basically trying to recreate what we can already do on the Mac, but we're trading away. Like it's more complex and less powerful and less useful. And I'm over here saying like, what about what about this 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 whole world that was sort of stillborn? Like like mm-hmm. where you could do something that you could not do on the PC. When we're talking about dealing with multiple windows, we can do that on the PC. It's like, would you rather do that on the PC or would you rather do it on the computer? Would you rather stay at a Motel 6 or would you rather stay at a, at a Ritz-Carlton? Well, if we if we make the Motel 6, you know, we have much, be- much nicer bed sheets and if we have better service and we make the rooms bigger and then the, we could have like, a, we could have a, a Ritz-Carlton too. And it's like, that's not disruptive. It's trying to do the same thing, but like from a different perspective, yeah. I want something that's completely and utterly new. And, and when I look back 10 years on, it's like where where are those applications? Where like yeah. that's what I'm interested in, right? And now we're you know we're, we have Apple bragging about desk, desktop class Safari, which right. is it's, again which is just parody. It's just parody. Anyway, I want to take a break. I have one more sponsor to thank, but and then oh, we'll, yeah. we'll bring this home on iPad. Brand new sponsor for the show. It's our good friends at Feels F E A L S. What is Feels? Feels is a premium. CBD delivered directly to your doorstop. What does Feels do? Feels naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. It'll help you sleep. Easy to take. How do you take it? You take a few drops of Feels, drop it under your tongue, and you will feel the difference within minutes. Uh, New to CBD? Don't know what it's all about? Feels? Offers a free CBD hotline and text message support. Personally, I'd rather text than call somebody on the phone, but whatever you want, you can do it and they can help you guide your personal experience. You can feel better naturally with feels. It works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high. It's not stuff that gets you, gets you high. There's no hangover, no addiction. And it's a membership system. You join the Feels community and you get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order because you're a member. And you can pause or cancel at any time. 
feels will make you feel your best every day. It can help you get to sleep, reduce anxiety. It's good stuff. You can become a member today by going to feels.com, F-E-A-L-S.com slash talk show. And when you use that URL, F-E-A-L-S.com slash talk show, you will get 50% off your first order, half off your first order, and free shipping. That's feels.com slash talk show. You'll become a member and get 50% off automatically your first order with free shipping. My thanks to Feels for sponsoring the show. Give them a try. I really like this, the fact that we started with the the sort of the disruption in Christians and stuff a bit at yeah. the beginning. Because I think it it gets at exactly why I am frustrated by the product, disappointed in, in, in the product. It, it's Again, it's not to say it's not, people don't love them and it's not successful and Apple doesn't make a lot of money from, from, from them. It's that it, I think that I think that's what masks the problems that people do love them and people do use them and so it's easy for somebody to defend it and say what there's nothing wrong right it's successful and it, people love it but I I really it, it is frustrating to me I, and I don't think it's lived up to the potential and I while I like the fact that they're talking that they've added quote unquote desktop class Safari like that should ten years in that should not be a bragging point well I mean it's just like if the why is it – it's sad to me that the goal is to compete with the Mac. Yeah. It's sad because, one, like the Mac's pretty good at what it does, and if anything, I'd rather have more resources go there to make it better. But, two, it's sad because you're playing on the Mac's turf. Like you're if you want to compete with a multi-window environment, probably best to start with the environment that was built with multi-window assumptions from the beginning. The iPad was not built with those assumptions. The iPad was built with one-window assumptions that it's the entire it, – Again, that it transforms the device into a music studio. It transforms the device into an easel. It transforms the device into a, a, a photo, you know, editing environment or, or whatever it might be. And you know, I think there was, I think there's two areas where the iPad really lost its way. Uh, the first area, unfortunately, and, and <laughs> fits with the theme, I guess, of this podcast was Jobs passing away. Like I. I I'm very reticent to go into you know what you know Steve Jobs would make it would would do something different, but I, I think the one product that misses Jobs more than any other product is the iPad. Like like again, it, it, like to me, it really was the culmination of what he was pushing computing to be, with his vision of what computing could be, computing for the rest of us. I th- and. Uh, and and when he was gone, no, who 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 had that vision? I think one of the things Steve Jobs was so good at, and, and his reputation is that he was so, I mean, for lack of a better word, arrogant, right? And you couldn't tell him anything. And But the fact is he did listen. And and famously, there's always a bunch of stories where someone would get in an argument with them and they'd, Jobs would say X and you would say Y. And then you'd make your case for Y and he'd say, that's stupid. And you come back the next day and Jobs would say, I have a great idea. Why? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that was his way of like acknowledging that you were right. It's like he slept on it and he was like, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. And then he'd convince himself it was his idea. And then, you know, go ahead. But he, he could, he could admit mistakes. Right. And, and he didn't go into den- denial about them. And so uh, in small ways, I do think that if jobs were still around, I think that the MacBook keyboard fiasco oh, would have ended no. sooner. 
without question. I'm not I mean, saying I, they wouldn't have shipped it. And I've always said throughout the whole thing, the problem isn't that they shipped that keyboard. The problem is, I mean, in, they shipped it, it for three and a half years. Ideally, they wouldn't have shipped it, but you make mistakes. You know what I mean? You ship, they shipped the Mac Cube, you know, and it, it turned out it was not the right idea. You know what they did? They stopped production of the Mac Cube. You know, they didn't make the Mac Cube for four years and keep throwing good money after bad. Um, you know, I, I really do think that there are ways that Jobs' leadership and his style would have helped, you know, the Mac. But the Mac doesn't need that much help, you know. The Mac it knows what it is. It does what it does really well. Um, and, and the phone has done really well post-Jobs and that there's people clearly at Apple who kind of have a really good sense of the iPhone. It's clearly... The, you know, because it makes the most money. I mean, you can be cynical about it. It, it gets the highest talent within the company to pay the fullest attention to every aspect of it, hardware and software. And I think it's in a really good place. Um, software wise, I really do think iOS 13 is in a really good place. And there's things I would change. Um, you know, everybody has complaints but i'm with you i think that the ipad is the one product where it really and at a big level it's not like a little thing like oh i don't think the button should be flat i think they should have a little bit of 3d or something like that it's not a superficial thing i think at a a very profound fundamental conceptual level, level yeah conceptual level the ipad could be could be so much further along and i do think and i'm with you i i really do hate to play the i think things would you know be x y and c different if steve jobs were still around but I really do feel like the iPad is the one where it shows. And I've seen a bunch of other people, either in reaction to my piece or just on their own on this 10th anniversary, express the same thought. And and it's really hard to deny, I think, if you really... And going back like you did and looking at that, especially not the first iPad, but that iPod, iPad 2 demo with the GarageBand thing and a couple other things that... And, and you know, with a year of their own use of iPad combined with seeing how the world had taken to it under their belt, um, it, there did seem to be a certain gleam in his eye that they were onto something. And then all that really happened in the intervening years is they've just made faster and faster CPU. I mean, the hardware got undeniably better, right? It went to Retina and got thinner and lighter. It's truly, you know... The iPhone and the iPad are the best hardware they make. And the Mac, it's almost unfair. You know, the Mac is so limited by what Intel offers. You know, the, the one thing that the Mac users are most jealous of is the fact that they we don't have uh, I, uh, Apple's own ARM CPUs inside. It's, it's, yeah, well, but in terms yeah, of no. conceptual using the iPad, it just hasn't gone very far. Well, it's funny. So there's been two there's been two ways where Apple has sought to sort of push the iPad forward post jobs, and uh, and the because you know sales kind of peaked around the iPad two, iPad three era, and then they sort of started to go down. And Apple's like, you know, what can we do to make this better? The first one was coming out with the iPad Pro and the pencil and the keyboard. Uh, 
it's interesting because I think the pencil was so clearly the right thing to do. It, it was definitely one of those X, Y arguments you'd have to have with jobs where, you know, he would, I'm sure have been against it. And then you would have convinced him that's the right thing to do. Like it, that it is a, it's a, again, it, what, what is powerful about the pencil is it's something that you can't do on the Mac. Yes. Right. You can have a Wacom tab, a tablet or something on those, those sorts of lines, but it's still indirect manipulation. Or if you even have the ones that show the screen on there, it's, it's very clunky. It's not accessible to most people. The iPad makes a new, sort of paradigm and approach accessible to to new people in a way that doesn't really make sense on a phone either. It's something unique and special to iPad and as I noted, remains my number one use case for an iPad <laughs> is doing these drawings. I don't know if um, Jobs would have been opposed to it. I know everybody loves to you know go back to that if you see a stylus, they blew it quote. But that was about the phone. And and it was about requiring a stylus. It was about right. a device where you right. needed a stylus to use it like the Newton and the Palm Pilot and it, there's a reason – that's not the only reason why they called it the Apple Pencil and not the Apple Stylus. You know, it wasn't just to avoid the, the word that you know, founder Steve Jobs had used and said they blew it. it it's different because it's absolutely not required. It does something very different. You can use it. And I know in the early days of the pencil, it was actually up in the air whether you could even use it as a replacement for your finger for uh, – tapping buttons and stuff or was it only for drawing and they you know worked that out it, it it's totally a plus it is a it is it just enables an entirely new level of stuff on your ipad it's not something you need so i don't know that jobs would have been opposed what to you it. said is super important too it's a plus in a way that enhances the experience without detracting from it in a way right. multitasking is a plus Right. But it, it it imposes such a level of overhead and complexity that for someone like your mom or me personally, me. it's it, it's a minus. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Right. And so like that that's how you know uh, that's an addition yeah. that makes sense when it's purely additive, yeah. like yeah. like the pencil is. But anyhow, so so Apple pushes forward uh the hardware. And obviously the hardware today is in an amazing state. Like the iPad Pro today is I think the most beautiful piece of hardware that Apple makes. It rivals the iPhone four for arguably the best piece of hardware apple has ever made yeah um as far as just sort of like being a jewel and just this incredible sort of sort, sort, sort of thing uh so that was number one uh and then number two has been this recent push to add uh the ipad os and add this multitasking and this complexity and what's interesting about both of those efforts is those are both things that are under apple's what does apple control on the ipad they control the hardware and they control the os and where have they focused their efforts on, you know, sort of making the iPad interesting to end users? It's uh, by iterating on the hardware and iterating on the OS. And the, there, there's a big missing piece here, which is the apps themselves, the right. developers. And, and this is, to my mind, the fundamental failing of the iPad. Like, at the end of the day, Steve Jobs is one person. You can't, like, like you can't have, no matter how great he is, you, you he, Steve Jobs is not going to conceptualize every possible use case that an iPad could be used for. Like this idea that an iPad can become anything, by definition, you, that's where you need the third-party developers to come up with completely new Pro, you know, programs and applications for, for an iPad that transform it into something different that Apple would have never thought of, that Steve Jobs would have never thought of. Like, this is the whole power of markets where y y people create something completely new to meet a need that no sort of central authority would have thought of on their own, but, but, but it's possible to come, to, to, to come forward and to, why do they do it? Because they can, one, it's possible, and two, they can make money doing it. And that's the missing piece. You can't make money. It, it, like the, the, the iPad 
is meant to be some sort of like productivity where you can do stuff on it. That's what makes the large canvas approachable in a way the, the iPhone sort of isn't. But to do that, you need to be able to sell and you need to be able to sell to people and the people that fall in love with your application, it's really good. Oh, can you add this feature? Can you add this feature? Well, you can add the features and you can charge them again. And guess what? That's how the, like, that's why, that's what happened on the Mac. You had developers creating all sorts of applications, creating entire industries, which you mentioned in your piece, like, especially the, like the graphic design and, and layout and, and all those sorts of things. You had all these sort of small developers making all these little utilities on the Mac. And, and you, and why did it work? Because you didn't have to go out and sell at one time for 99 cents and try to get a bunch of users. You could find your core users, your, your, you know, thousand true fans or whatever. You could charge them. Then you could work for a year. You come back, you could charge the same users again. And they were happy to pay you because they loved your application. They, it was very useful for them. You could do more. All that aspect is missing because of the app store's limitations. And my the reason why I think the iPad never reaches potential, we never got these sort of transformative use cases that were that were not recreating the Mac, but we're creating something entirely new and powerful is because there was no money in it. And, and you couldn't, like, to create something like GarageBand requires a huge amount of resources. It means making a big bet because to building software, you have to spend all the time and money up front creating that, and you have to put it out there for sale and hope people come along and tell their friends and then will buy an upgrade. Like, who, who, why would you make that bet if you're in an app store environment? There's no business model to justify it, which meant those applications never got made. And, and, and this is Apple's, you know, this is Apple's sort of tragic weakness. Like they, they want to control everything. And that control meant they tried to use that control to make the iPad better. What can we control? We can control the hardware. Great. We'll make the hardware much better. What can we control? We control the OS. Great. We'll take the OS and we'll add a bunch of stuff that maybe that's what people will like. What a Apple actually needed to make the iPad successful was to loosen control, was to give more freedom, more possibilities so that developers could make these transformative experiences that, that took the potential of a device that could change into anything you wanted it to be and to fully realize that. You mentioned, I forget what year you took the numbers from, but there was a point and, and it's firsthand. And, but to me, it's the one where the Mac was clearly the strongest was the desktop publishing industry. And there were other areas where the Mac did and has continued to thrive, um, education in some ways, but, uh, desktop publishing for me is near and dear to my heart. And it truly transformed the industry as a 10 year old product. And I, I again, it's exactly how old the iPad is. The graphic design industry, whether you're like an illustrator or doing page layout in Quark or PageMaker at the time, um, or whatever you, you know, all the various things you could do in Photoshop, nobody who was a professional illustrator or photographer or layout artist was using computers in 1984. There were, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but I mean, but it was obscure and you were using these text based things and nobody really, it, it was, it just computers just weren't part of it, and by 1994, nobody was not using a computer. It, it it in ten years, everything was computerized. Everything, all all page layout, every newspaper, every magazine, every advertisement, everything that was going to print went through computer software, and it was either on the Mac or it was Windows versions of apps on the Mac, but probably it was through the Mac. 
Um, I remember when I was doing print stuff in the 90s, you, you used to have to pay more if it was Windows formatted stuff sometimes than if it was Mac because it, the, the print shops anticipated so many problems with like color separation and stuff like that. It, they literally ch- charged more because it was so fundamentally Mac based. What are the industries like that? that have been transformed by the iPad. And there are some, I mean, it's like somebody pointed out that, that iPads are huge with pilots. I get it. I mean, I, so saying that there's none is, is an overstatement. There are apps like procreate that are really, really great. And on the iPad and, and, you know, I, I think the pencil drives a lot of that with procreate and, and it's great in a way that you just couldn't really do what procreate does on the Mac it really needs that direct manipulation, um, but it it there's just nowhere near as much of it as there could be. Well, just look, look, look at the companies. I mean, the the uh, in 1984, uh, Adobe did not exist. Uh, in 1994, it did, and it was worth a billion dollars. And Apple and was, was only worth two billion at the time. <laughs> uh, ex- exactly, and I, you know, if you if you go back through the entire history, I think that's a reason why Apple. Has been has been so uh, unfriendly, relatively speaking, to developers. They don't want another Adobe because right. Adobe, you know, famously would not support OS ten, uh, and um, you know, and, and I think that you know, Apple never wanted to be positioned where they were dependent on Microsoft and Adobe. And so, the what happened though in the long run is uh, Microsoft and Adobe are the only companies making like re- these super complex applications for the iPad uh, because they they have larger business models that justify it. And no, but that's the whole point. Like, like the graphic design revolution, which you cannot overstate, like that's that, uh, graphic design and, uh, um, desktop publishing that like, that's what kept the Mac alive. The only reason yep. Apple is around and the only reason we have iPhones and iPads and all this stuff to talk about is because when Apple was at its lowest point, People who were in desktop publishing were still buying Macs, right? Yep. That's how yep. that's how dominant it was, and that was not they were not buying it because of Mac Paint, right? Yep. Mac Paint was a demonstration of what was possible, and then you had companies like Aldis come along with PageMaker or Quark, with Quark Express. You know, you and I both cut our both cut our teeth on Quark Express and, and Adobe with first Illustrator and then Photoshop and then the, the Acrobat PDF, and then they came along with. Uh, do to compete. Uh, what's their Quark Express uh competitor? InDesign. Um, yeah, InDesign, and basically built their company on the Mac. And, and third party developers are what made the Mac transformative and powerful. And why? Because it was it was open. You could go on there and you could charge what you wanted to charge. You could charge it when you wanted to charge. You charge for upgrades. Apple didn't have any control over that, and that made it entirely possible. And, and again. Everything's a trade-off. This is a tie-in to our encryption talk before. There are huge benefits to app, to the app store, to security, to customers feeling safe with their, with their to being willing to buy applications. This isn't to deny any of that. But there has been a tremendous loss in business model flexibility that, in my estimation, is the biggest reason why the iPad has not reached its potential. It's not to say the iPad is not valuable as it is. It is. But it is it, it it is so much closer to what it launched as V1. Like it, it, we're so much closer to the iPad one keynote, and it feels like we're farther away than ever from the iPad two keynote. And that's what makes me sad. That's why I call it tragic. Like it, it's it's not that it's a failure. It's that it it there was the possibility of something completely new, and I just feel we never really reached that potential. 
Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, you know, and I've, you know, we took very different, I, I mean, and I have more to say, but, you know, more to write as, and hopefully I'll get around to it soon, but in weeks to come. And I focused on specific details, you know, user interface gripes and you, your, your complaint is much more big picture, but fundamentally it's two different angles on the same thing, which is that it didn't live up. It hasn't, it hasn't yet lived up to its potential and, and, it could still, but would require a uh, require leadership at Apple to acknowledge that it hasn't lived up to its potential. And I seriously question whether that's there. I, I really do feel that there's. Uh, I, I can't help but think that. And to me, iPad OS thirteen is is the evidence of it that this is the one they decided to give the new name to and say it's its own S and its own OS. You know, it has its own name, and didn't really backtrack from any of this and hasn't really, you know. And and the other thing we can mention on this, and I feel like it's held the iPad back more than the phone, is um, the thirty percent slash fifteen percent tax whatever you want well not tax it's not a tax but the you know the revenue that apple wants to insist it gets through app store purchases for anything and everything that goes through an app and i can't help but think that that's hurt and and it gets to your issue of insisting on control as opposed to just letting third-party developers have more freedom on the platform well, it's, it's, I mean, that's part, that's absolutely part of it. But also there's an aspect of the more specialized and niche an app by definition, the smaller your audience and the way the app store has worked is it's always, if you want to make money, you need to sort of have access to, to the largest audience possible. And, and you know, whereas if you want to make, if you have a niche app, you want to make more money from fewer people, right? Like this is my business model, right? I, I'm not trying to sell strategy to a million people. What I want to do is sell it to a much smaller number of people, but they pay me money continuously. So I get a lot of money out of them, right? My average revenue per customer is, is, is very high. It, that's very hard to do with, with an application because the way it worked on the Mac previously was you would sell an application for say $50. Then a year later, you have an update to the application and you can maybe sell, well, you have upgrade pricing. So if you're an existing user, you can buy it for $35 or your new user buy it for $50. And what this lets you do is you're getting like $50 or $30, whatever it might be per customer per year, year over year over year that justifies this ongoing sort of investment. Now things are a little better now because you can do subscription pricing. But the problem is, is, is that is so sort of consumer hostile in a way, like you have to pay or you're going to lose access to your application. There's no, like it, it that you know, we see this again and again, where where apps developers switch to this model because it's the only way they can survive, right? You have you can't make money always selling to new users. It's it's impossible. You have to be able to make money from your existing users on an ongoing basis. The only way Apple has to do that is through subscription pricing, which is an awkward fit for productivity apps anyway. And then there's this gut wrenching transition where everyone accuses you of being a bad person because you're now char- you, you know charging a subscription instead of just selling that and letting them own it and, and et cetera, et cetera. The, the problem they, they, they can't do otherwise because Apple never gave them the tools to do it, to, to do it otherwise. And, uh, and it, it's a shame, like, it, like who in their right mind is going to start a company today that is focused on building complex, new to the world, transformative iPad applications. 
that like there's no one that's going to do it. The only one that's going to do it is Apple, and Apple doesn't have anyone that seems to have the vision to do it. And anyway, to have one company making everything is not a viable outcome. Anyways, like they should be making a platform. I mean, <laughs> the the tragedy. This is the tragedy that I was. I wrote about this back uh, when the iPad pencil came out. The real tragedy of the iPad is it would be such a better product if Microsoft owned it because Microsoft understands how to build a third party platform and to, and and to, and to make it possible. The problem is that you earn the right to be a platform by building a great product. And my, that Microsoft's not going to build great products. Microsoft got the Windows platform by l- leveraging IBM basically to get computers everywhere and then they already had the the platform then they could be a good platform provider, right? The way it works in the consumer market is you have to sell something that's compelling by itself where users want it and buy it, and then once you have the install base, now you're a platform, and and that's not Microsoft. That's not what Microsoft is good at. They're not good at building super friendly user, you know, consumer products that people just want to buy in their own right. And so you have this weird situation where, in an ideal world, we could have Apple create these new concepts, these new ideas, these new products like an iPad, and then they could hand it off to Microsoft to manage, and then we could have a, a flowering, developing, you know, developer ecosystem on top of it that help it reach its full potential. But uh, unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way. Hey, what app do you use? I wanted to ask you this. What app do you use for making your, your drawings for Stratechery on the iPad? So the app I used for many years was was Paper by kind of called 53, uh, paper, uh, has since they were acquired, I think they're still around, but they basically failed. Uh, they only ever made money by selling a stylus. And then the Apple Pencil right. came out, which made their application way better and also destroyed their ability to make money. Uh, again, because like I would have, I would have paid for upgrades continually to that application, but they charged me once like $10 and right. I used it for years and made, you know, <laughs> a ton of money using their application and they got none of that. Um, so I increasingly use Linnea now from from uh, from the folks at Icon Factory. Yeah. Uh, so I still use Paper for a couple things. There's a few things that it a few effects it has, but more, uh, that I I like. But more and more I use uh, Linnea. Um, it just it, it's really cool. It's got some more power as far as layering goes and stuff like that. Um, whereas Paper is more of a pure drawing app. Um, but yeah, those are the two applications that I use. Yeah. I love Linea. I, I call it Linea. I don't know how to pronounce it. I should ask <laughs> ask our friend Hockenberry. Linea. I, I'm gonna guess that I'm wrong. <laughs> you can always you can make a ton of money betting that any on any pronunciation thing. My guess is wrong. Linea. Yeah. Linea sounds prettier, and they do graphic. You know, so I'm gonna guess it actually is Linea. But I've in it's, my head, we're gonna I've find always, out it's like Line A. <laughs> I've said Linea. That's that's my go-to drawing app. I don't do a lot of drawings, but when I do, I, I that's what I use. I love it. And I, one of the things I love about it, and it's just from one small indie developer. It's like a $10 app. I think they're moving to a subscription problem. But it has things like layers. It has, you know, which are concepts that are common in every Mac drawing, photo editing app. Um, but Linea doesn't look like a Mac app at all. It it. It is so iPad, and it also doesn't look. I, I know, and I know they have like a little iPhone version, you know, where you can finger paint. Um, but the iPad version is like the one true version, and it is iPady in a way. Um, it, it's, I, it, it's your it, iPad becomes an easel. Like, the, yes. like the the best iPad apps change the nature of what this device in your hand is. 
right? My iPad with an NBA game on it is a TV. My iPad with Lay on it is an easel. My iPad with GarageBand on it is a piano. Like to your to your point, and, and that like that is that is the the magic of the iPad. And and there's no magic in multitasking. Sorry, right? And like in, in it's it's the the like this whole concept of putting the iPad against a Mac or against a PC. It's like you're putting in a situation where it's going to lose. Like yes, some people will power through. Like it, you have to be more of a of a power user to use an iPad for multitasking than you do a PC, which doesn't make any. Which is it's just conceptually doesn't make any sense. Right. And and like the tra- it's the wrong trade offs were made. Like the the trade off should be that an iPad is impossibly easy to use. When your mom's doing mail, she's in her mail app. When she's browsing the web, she's on the web. Like it, it transforms. There's no of uh, this mixing of metaphors and mixing of, of ideas together. It is it is what it is. And if you feel frustrated by that and limited by that, then you should go get a Mac. Like it, like this idea that we should lose the simplicity to have an inferior version of of the Mac is just just this is wrong to me. I think you made this point in your article. The like like less powerful and more complex or something along those yeah, lines. Like yeah. it's it, it, that's the sure sign that the wrong trade-offs were made. Well, and if it were going to be, you know, it, maybe it should be off by default. You know, like your your point that the multitask, you know, that you want to argue that the split screen multitasking was all a mistake or whatever. And for the people who really do love it, uh, uh, maybe it should be there as an option, but it maybe it should be off by default. But I, I firmly stand by what you just said, that it is a power user feature. Whereas on the Mac, because that's what the Mac was designed for ground up, people, common people don't even think about the fact that you can see two or three apps at a time on your Mac. It doesn't even seem like a thing that you've done or did anything for. Um Right. And I'm not saying everyone everyone should get a Mac. Like the, that's the thing. I actually think the iPad should be the computer for the rest of us, right? right. Like, like the, as it were. Like there, you can do everything you want to do on an iPad uh, as on a Mac. Like if you want to have multiple windows, like you don't need two windows to do something. But you could switch back and forth. The reason you have two windows is because it's more convenient and easier easier to do, right? Yeah. But that, that's that that's fine. Like like. It's okay to have something more complex for more powerful, more complex things. So, uh, one of the things I want to bring up, and I, I, hopefully, I'd be able. I haven't looked, but because I only thought of it while while you and I are talking right here. But I want, hopefully, I can maybe get some videos of it. I don't know how I'll find them, but or at least some screenshots. But do you remember Tweety for iPad when Lauren Brichter was doing Tweety before it was acquired by Twitter and became the official Twitter for iOS app? Um. Tweety, do you remember Tweety for iPad? It was wholly original and separate from Tweety for iPhone and had what I consider for a productivity type app where it's like you're, you know, as much as Twitter can count as productivity, but you're reading and it's text and there's a list of things and you tap from a list to go into the, you know, it 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 had an, a design that was so uh, different, it, and it never would have worked on the Mac. Whereas, like if you look at like Mail for iPad from Apple, it is fundamentally architected visually like Mail on 
the Mac. It's just that you tap things instead of click on them. And some things slide over as opposed to all staying on screen because it's a slightly smaller screen. But Tweety for iPad was so different and was so wholly for the iPad. But also, in addition to not just aping the way a Mac Twitter client would, could, and should be designed, it also wasn't just the iPhone version, okay, but now it's on a 10-inch screen. And... More, more, the iPad to me is so large at the application level, so caught between those two things. Most of, mostly being just a big iPhone. But then when it's not, it's just a touchscreen Mac type thing, as opposed to being something wholly unique to it, right? Like the, that's the potential that to me hasn't been tapped are use cases where it could only be on an iPad. Couldn't be done on the phone because the phone is too small. Couldn't be done on the Mac because the Mac interface is touch aside, just isn't conducive to this sort of direct manipulation of holding a tablet in your hand. I completely agree. And Tweety is the one that's a heartbreak. And then you look at like the stupid Twitter app for iPad now and it, it, it's a big it, iPhone app. It could not be more. It could not be more just a big iPhone app. It is the canonical. Just take what we did for the iPhone and blow it up to the size of whatever the size of your iPad is. But again, in Twitter's defense, like, why would you do anything different? It's like it's not worth. It's 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 not it's not worth the effort. Uh, right. And pride, <laughs> pride in your work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's then. It, this is why. The fact that this Twitter, is, this is, the fact that Twitter as a company has like a thousand engineers, yeah, it's it's amazing. Like they have four thousand employees. I like hear that. you. I'm not telling wow. you that you're wrong. I get the argument of why would we do that, but you know, fair points, fair points. Um, but just to go back to our the the thing we started when with the iPad discussion about like sort of the critics and people complaining about these articles, uh. I feel like, and again, I am uh, I am even more so than you. I am a massive critic of what the iPad has become. I think it just. I, I think the whole multitasking approach is a mistake. I think that the uh, one app on the screen at a time is the right way to go. Uh, and I get a lot of people disagree with that. But what I uh, what I hope uh, is clear is, in some respects, this is like the jilted lover sort of view of it. Like I. I I am so disappointed in the iPad as it is because I wanted and thought there could have been something transformative, not the Mac done differently, but actually something that was was unlocked possibilities and ways of computing that were never possible previously. And we get we have there's 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 shadows of that. Like there's bits and pieces yeah. of that. And interestingly, one of the areas is the music industry where there has actually been a lot of uh, innovation and there's a, a whole like way to communicate between apps that was developed for music apps that was kind of skirted around Apple's limitations between connecting data and stuff back back in the day like and, and perhaps seeded because of what Apple did but I just feel like we never ever got to what it could be and I see no I, I just don't see it happening because you know again when the iPad first came out everyone wanted to build for it they wanted yeah. to develop for it but now who's going to be Who's going to take that risk? And it's not our fault, you and me, Ben Thompson and John Gruber. It's not our fault that we can't come up with specific uh, ideas for what the 
what the iPad could be in 2020. That's not our job. We can, it's, it, we're simply observing that they're not there, right? Like in 1984, it wasn't clear at all what that Photoshop, what Photoshop could be in 1994 or, or Quark Express, which is truly phenomenal. Um, or the way that, uh, like you said, that the desktop publishing industry largely kept Apple afloat because they still bought high end Mac hardware throughout the whole thing because they had these workflows where catalogs were entirely set up in FileMaker databases for the catalog items. And when you were ready to print a new 64-page catalog, you just hit one button, walked away for a minute or two, and then there was a Quark Express document with 64 pages completely laid out with the photos and the items and everything and ready to be proofread. Yeah, and, a- Apple Script as an underrated factor in Apple not going out of business. Yeah, is, combined is with like FileMaker and and a database that was completely visual as opposed to abstract SQL tables, which have their place. But the fact that totally normal people could just like open the database and look at it, <laughs> you know, and drag pictures in and stuff like that. Uh and that you'd have these workflows where what used to be days of work was now like a minute of letting an Apple script do its thing, communicating between FileMaker. You couldn't imagine it in 1984, but the, the, the foundation was there. You can go backwards from 1984 or from 1994 and see how the fundamental ideas that the Mac was born with in 1984 led to this. You could go backwards and see it. And you could see that potential with the iPad 10 years ago, and it, it just didn't, it just hasn't gotten there. And, and I yeah. think it could, I think it could, it, you know, five years from now, we could have you on the show and maybe, you know, there, there's a renaissance in the iPad. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. But I would, the, I don't the, think the, so the missing, either. The, to me, the missing piece was, you, you, was the business model piece. And the problem is, even if Apple suddenly came out with, uh, upgrade pricing and all, like all that, all those sorts of things like the uh, in trials, like the trials you do today, they have to either be, you know, an unlock an in-app purchase or, or else the subscription thing. There's no, like you can't just have a full featured app, like a seven week trial or a seven day trial, like that, that one click, like which, you know, we, we had a windows eight, like 10 years ago. Uh, the, even if that all came tomorrow, I think that developers are so burned by, by by the iPad and people will bring up uh, applications that are on the iPad that are that are complex and whatever and uh, I I think it would be very interesting to think about those complex applications and uh, see if they ever actually made any money or if they're just massive <laughs> massive losses. Yeah. Uh, I, I, let's just put it this way: I don't think that any developer that has experimented with the iPad previously is going to ever go back to the iPad, and that's a business model problem, not not a device problem. Uh, and, um, and yeah, it's a shame. It's too bad. Yeah. You just, you know, another way to put it is you just don't see that many iPad only apps, apps that could only be on the iPad. Don't make sense on the phone. Cause the screen's not big enough. Don't make sense on the Mac. Cause the, the interface isn't, it isn't appropriate in the way that, you know, back in the day, there'd be Mac apps that never would make sense on the Apple too, because it just doesn't make sense without everything that the Mac had. The, the iPad offers so much that, that the Mac doesn't by its innate nature that there could be apps like that. Yep. And you just don't see that many of them. Um, 
All right. Anyway. <laughs> Let's end on Bring an it up- on, haters. Let's end on an upbeat note like that. <laughs> ben, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, how about this? How about a Super Bowl pick? Uh, I am cheering for Kansas City because I want Andy Reid to win one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hate the 49ers. So, um, uh, but I, I have I have not watched f- uh, football closely enough to right. know who to pick. All right, I'm going to go the same way. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Kansas City because I want Andy Reid to win one because I find Patrick Mahomes to be a, just an absolutely appealing person. I'm not I have no no skin in the game with or with you know for or against Kansas City, but I I do like Andy Reid. I would like to see him win one. I do like Patrick Mahomes, and I do hate the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> How do you get a Cowboys fan and a Packers fan united? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ask them about the 49ers. That's what we should do. We should open up, we should have like a bunch of pop-up bars around. We, you and I should quick get this together. Put, put, raise a couple, uh, uh, raise $100,000 and open up a bunch of Packers slash Cowboys pop-up bars around the nation for Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> One week leases. <laughs> it's funny because I think it, maybe this is our age too, particularly because in the nineties, like the like the these three teams had so many sort of playoff uh, epic you know, games and big epic matchups. Games. Yeah. That, that's right. Where where like if the Cowboys were in the were in the Super Bowl, I'd be sitting here with the 49ers fan saying, "Hey, as long as it's not the Cowboys, yeah, like, yeah, we're now totally. on the same team." And uh, you probably feel the same way as the Packers. So uh, yeah. it, 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 it it's like. Uh, uh, a triangle of of hate. Yeah, <laughs> that's my pick as well. All right, uh, everybody. Of course, they, you've been on the show enough; they know it. But uh, Stratechery, S T R A C H E R Y. Oh, you see, you spelled it wrong. Which is funny S-T-R- because I spelled it wrong for someone on your thing. A T E C H E R Y. Strategy and tech. When strategy people hear strategy and tech, then they're like, oh, now the name makes total sense. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, well, d- d- tell me about it. Uh, is uh, you, There's a good column this week on on the iPad that we talked about here, but people should read it. Uh, and, of course, uh, as you mentioned, a subscription newsletter, uh, which everybody who listens to this show ought to at least consider. It's it's one of my favorite reads. Um, and you're, you have two great Twitter accounts. You've got at Ben Thompson, where you write about stuff like this. And then there's No Tech Ben, where it's all Milwaukee Bucks all the time this time of year. Um, Basically. Probably gets me in trouble, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. I have a I have a really bad feeling. I mean, I'm not into the NBA like you, but I have a really bad feeling that we're heading towards a, a Sixers-Bucks fi- uh, Eastern Finals that's going to end in five games. <laughs> With the Bucks heading towards the Finals. Uh I just that'd be, fine with, that'd be fine with me. I well, yeah. Well, it's funny. The Seventy Sixers are terrible against everyone, uh, in part because they're basically expressly built to beat the Bucks, uh, which which is yeah. very concerning to me that they're gonna like end up in the playoffs like the fifth or sixth seed or something, and we're gonna have to play them anyway, and it's gonna be brutal. I mean, obviously, they destroyed the Bucks on Christmas. Um, I think it's probably a game that. Uh, had had concerning signs to say the least, but also the shooting was such that you know it was a bit of an aberration. But yeah, yeah, um, it was, it's it, it's it's going to be it, it would be a war for sure. Yeah, but anyway, they can find you there. And I want to thank our sponsors this week. Feels get your uh, CBD. Really interesting new sponsor. Glad to have them. Linode, uh, where you can host your own server in the Linode cloud. Great 
great company. And Casper, makers of fine mattresses and other sleep products. Um, thanks. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you soon.